Hello everyone and welcome back to Spill the Murder. Um, I'm Dea and hi everyone. And this is Chloe. Um, so today's episode is very different than the other episodes I've done before. It's very prolific and very, um serious and it's really killed a lot of people a lot of u.s people a lot of american citizens and we all know what it is but we don't know it down to the itty-gritty bits chloe had lived in the uk since she was 12 years old and her family up and moved to the united states at the age of 12 and she's now like 17 years old and she only read a little bit what 9-11 is because in textbooks they only tell you very little bit of what it is they only say how many people were killed like I was saying like some like she only knows a little bit not a lot of the whole context behind 9-11 they only said who done it in those textbooks they tell you how many people died what planes hit what but not literally what actually happened prior to 9-11 actually happening so they don't really want to tell you more about it because they don't want you to know more they just want you to know very little about certain subjects about certain topics in history. So, we're going to know who Osama bin Laden is, what Al-Qaeda is, and we're going to go back way before um, 9-11. And we're going to get to 9-11 soon. So, not just the history of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, but we're going to know where he's from, where his name is, and why he became who he became. So, and Chloe's going to interject when she wants to. And um, she's just going to listen as well and say a few things. Yeah, I just wanted to say I never knew about... 9-11, when I read it in textbooks, I was so surprised because of the fact that a lot of, a lot of American citizens died. And I was like, what the fuck? Because, um, honestly, it was just sad. It saddened me. Normally, I don't get sad and you know me. I normally don't get that much sad unless it's about characters in a movie on a show but this one really saddened me because there was a lot of citizens that died especially on the plane and in the buildings and that stuff but other than that not really that much information that I know about 9-11 but I do thank you for 
honestly helping me no more or live it. So I'm going to let you have the floor. But I will certainly say things that I find interesting or I will question. Alright, without further ado, let's get started. Alright, Asaba bin Laden. Osama bin Laden was also known as Usama bin Laden, was a violent terrorist and mass murderer who used bombings and bloodshed to advance his extremist goals. After finding the terrorist organization Al-Qaeda, he engineered a serious attack on multiple countries that killed thousands of men, women, and children, often ordinarily citizens just going about their daily lives. Bin Laden's Extremist Roots Born in 1957 as Saudi Arabia, Bin Laden was the son of wealthy Saudi businessman. Following the Soviet Union's invasion of, Al- of Al- Afghanistan in late 1979, Bin Laden began providing financial and lung and logistical support to Islamic fighters battling the Soviets. In 1988, after Soviet forces were defeated and withdrew from Afghanistan, bin Laden founded an organization called Al-Qaeda, or as known as The Base, to continue the cause of Jahid, Holy War, through violence and aggression. Al-Qaeda soon became rising money, settling up, setting up train, training camps, providing military and intelligence instruction in such areas of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Sudan. Under bin Laden's direction, Al-Qaeda started launching attacks and bombings in various nations and further its violent crime and violent aims. During this time, bin Laden was becoming increasingly hostile to the United States. In particular, he opposed the U.S. military presence in Saudi Arabia and Somalia and sought to drive our nation's personnel out of these areas by force. After entering his operations in Sudan in early 1990s, bin Laden began formulating plans to attack the West with evolving with evolving deadly new brand of Jahid. Okay, I have a question. Why would he want to attack other places like the United States? Well, normally, Chloe, it's normally for power. It's normally for like saying like, we're better than you, we're powerful than you, we can overpower you, sort of thing. And... I don't know if it was at the time that, like, if Afghanistan and and, uh, and Pakistan and Sudan were small or big places at the time, but to me, they were probably bigger places, they are probably big places at the time, so he probably was for a power grab or for, like, a power, being that he was extremist. Probably it was for like a power grab and he wanted to solidify saying to 
the U.S. president, hey, we're powerful than you, we can overcome you, we have this, we have this, and we have this, and we can attack you whenever we can and whenever we want, basically. Oh, okay, I understand. But why would he want to create an organization like Al-Qaeda? For what? Honestly, I, for me, I don't know, but if, if I did know, I would say, like, he wanted, like, basically what he's seen, like, from the military battling with the Soviet Union and, and stuff, I guess he wanted to create his own military force, but with his own ideals and and things like that but like that's what I would say honestly but Bin Laden and other members of the Al-Qaeda also began issuing fatwas ruling rulings on Islamic law indicating that attacks on the US and its citizens were, were both proper and necessary Bin Laden later openly declared war on the United States. The initial attack on U.S. soil. On February 26, 1993, Razumi Yusuf, a young extremist who had trained on one of Bin Laden's camps, led the first major, major, major Middle Eastern terrorist attack on, on American soil by planting a truck bomb beneath the World Trade Center. The plan was to topple both towers, failed, but six people were killed and more than a thousand were injured. Following the connection, investigators soon uncovered and foiled a second terrorist plot to bomb a series of New York landmarks. The FBI also learned that Yusuf was planning more attacks, including the simultaneous bombing of dozen U.S. international flights in concert with his uncle Khalid Shaki Muhammad, who later joined at, um, um, who later joined Al-Qaeda. Ultimately, Yusuf captured, Yusuf was captured and multiple terrorist operatives were arrested and imprisoned for World Trade Center bombing deepening bin Laden's disdain for America. In the proximity of 1986, bin Laden and his supporters returned to Afghanistan, where an alliance with the Taliban government provided a secluded safe haven for al-Qaeda to train recruits and plan attacks. The East African Bombing and Indictment One of the terrorist organization's major plot was a deadly fruition on August 7, 1998, when Al-Qaeda operative bombed U.S. embassies in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Nairobi, Kenya. The near-simultaneous attacks killed more than 200 American, um, Ken- Kenyan, and Tanzanian citizens and wounded 4,500 people. These attacks were directly linked to bin Laden, 
who was indicted for his role in the bombings on November 4th, 1998. Oh, and Chloe, there is a show on Paramount Plus called FBI um, True Cases, and one of them was about this bombing, and it tells you, like, not tells you, but, like, it's, like, basically a former FBI agent and another former FBI agent who experienced other things, other cases that were prolific and had to deal with capturing, murder, being in undercover, all that stuff. And they discuss it and have, like, an alcoholic beverage and they talk about it. And, um... In one of the cases, they were talking about the U.S. Embassy attack in Africa. And it killed a lot of people. So if you want to listen to that, that one was more interesting than ever. These attacks were directly linked to Bin Laden, who was indicted for his role in the bombings on November 4th. 1998 and again in June 1999. The charges included the the murder of U.S. nationals outside the United States, conspiracy to murder U.S. nationals outside the United States, and attacks on federal facility resulting in death. A number of top Al-Qaeda operatives were ultimately captured and convicted for their roles in the bombings. The attacks led to ramped up anti-war efforts by the U.S. and the FBI, which created this first counterterrorism division in 1989, consolidating its first anti-terrorism efforts and keep, uh, capabilities. In June 7, 1989, the FBI placed Osama bin Laden on its 10 most wanted fugitives list, citing his connection in 1998 attacks in East Africa. As a new century dawned, Al-Qaeda continued its violent attacks. Some major plots failed, including a scheme to bomb the Los Angeles airport at the eve of millennial celebrations. On October 12, 2000, however, terrorist operatives set off a small boat filled with explosives next to U.S. USSS coal during its fuel stop in Yemen. The attack killed 17 Navy officers, injured nearly 40 other crew members, and severely damaged the ship. So, and the... FBI 10 Most Wanted Fugitive, it basically says for Osama bin Laden, it says the birth, his hair, his eyes, his complexion, his sex, his nationality, his occupation, his build, his weight, his height, and his place of birth, scars and marks, and it's the caution was a Usama bin Laden was wanted in connection to the August 7, 1998 bombing in the United States embassies in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Nairobi, Kenya. These attacks killed 200 people. In addition, bin Laden is a suspect in other terrorist attacks throughout the world.
and they had like a 25 million reward for information leading for the for the apprehension and conviction of Osama bin Laden. But then we have his newest attack and we're going to fast forward four years ahead. September 9th or September 11th, 2001. Do you have anything to say, Chloe? Um, Honestly, I think it's just sad that more people died at the hands of this crazy sadistic man that he that people call higher power because it's just crazy that like this one person that can give one order to multiple people to multiple multiple people that are under his leash can cause this mayhem of destruction as to killing embassies, U.S. embassies in different countries. It's just crazy. Yeah, I get that. I understand. Like, I know it was crazy because, like, I'm that type of person who will watch documentaries to understand the whole story or to watch true crime YouTubers like Murder With My Husband or The Mile Higher podcast or listen to True Crime Obsessed and listen to have like a more understanding of what happened and how it happened. Like get to the the bottom of it. So I'm like more that type of person and I and I like it because it I get to understand instead of like assuming certain things, like, oh this happened because of this happened. You know? So but back to the attack on 9-11. Meanwhile, Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were plotting attack America to in a more direct and deadly way. The president at the time was George W. Bush. On September 11, 2001, terrorists hijacked four airliners in the eastern United States. They flew three of the planes into buildings. The Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York, the Pentagon in Arlington, Arlington, Virginia, and they crashed the fourth plane in a field of rural Pennsylvania after passengers heroically rebelled. The horrific attack killed 3,000 people and injured thousands more. The FBI and its partners quickly learned that the 9-11 attack was carried out by Bin Laden's terrorist organization. The 19 men who hijacked and crashed the four planes were all planned by Al-Qaeda, and Bin Laden eventually admitted to his role in orchestrating the attacks. And ensuing the 9-11 investigation was the most massive in the history of the Bureau. The attacks led to far-reaching changes in the FBI, which made prevention of terrorist strikes an overriding priority and deliberately set out to be more productive or predictive and intelligence driven in addressing all major national security and criminal threats. 
And on October 10, 2001, Osama bin Laden was added to the nearly launched Most Wanted terrorist list. The U.S. and other nations joined military operations in Afghanistan to find him and other al-Qaeda terrorists. But bin Laden managed to elude capture. In August 2010, U.S. intelligence agencies developed information that Osama bin Laden was likely living in a compound in northern Pakistan. On May 2, 2011, under orders of President Obama, the Special Operations Unit raided the compound and killed bin Laden. Announcing a successful operation, President Obama said, quote, Bin Laden was not a Muslim leader. He was a mass murderer of Muslims. Indeed, Al-Qaeda has slaughtered scores of Muslims in many countries, including our own. So his demise should be welcomed by all who believed in peace and dignity. End quote. And that is all the information of Bin Laden and his wrongful doings and his mishaps and what he has done to the U.S. So, I have here this timeline, and you could find it online, Chloe. You could find it online for yourself and others out there. You guys can find it yourself. And you can go to timeline, T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E dot nine one one M E M O R I A L dot org slash the number sign capital T I M E L I N E slash four. And that's timeline dot nine eleven no slash memorial dot org slash number sign capital T for timeline slash four. And it'll give you a timeline of what happened before the nine eleven attacks. So here it says on April fourth, fourth, nineteen seventy two. Three, the dedication to the World Trade Center. In 1960s and early 70s, the Port of New York Authority, known from 1972 onward, was Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, a bi-state agency responsible for aviation, rail surface, and seaport facilities, and other regional assets develop its property in Lower Manhattan. The agency seeks to create an international trade and business hub that revitalized the economy of Lower Manhattan and the metropolitan region. To do so, the agency mission architect Minoru Yamasaki and his firm designed the World Trade Center. The project is complicated. Architects and engineers contend, contend with challenges that include keeping the Hudson River from flooding the construction site. Meanwhile, the Port Authority faces some opposition from the site's design and placement. After nearly seven years of construction on April 4, 1973, a dedication ceremony celebrates the completion of the World Trade Center, a 16-acre complex. 
The site features twin towers, two 110-story two skyscrapers. When they open, the tower is on the tallest building in the world. The North Tower stands 1,368 feet tall, while the North no, while the South Tower stands at 1,362 feet. So between those feet of the North and South Tower, those are four. Yeah, hold on. Those are six feet apart from each other. So one was taller than the other. Um, I'm reading, hold on, so give me one second. There's like a keychain that was given to people. It was a topping out chain. So at 9 um, 11.30 a.m. on December 23rd, 1970, construction workers placed a steel column atop the North Tower, then called Tower A, which was, again, 1,368 feet. This moment, known as the topping out, marks the placement of the first structural component to bring the building to its full height. The Port Authority holds topping out ceremony hosting the American flag ceremony hosting, like I said, the American flag attachment to the column and distributing keychains like, um, it has like a line and it has like a tower, two towers on it, looking like it's a number 11 on it, and like engraved on the, the keychain. And David Rice, a Kawaki Mohawk, and, and found and, and proud follower of the Chinese tradition for working the skyscrapers, he literally donated his keychain to the 9 11 Memorial Museum. Museum. They had like a ceremony for the dedication of the World Trade Center and someone donated a pamphlet. Well, they recovered it from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. It was like a ribbon cutting pamphlet like, oh, there's going to be a ribbon cutting at this day sort of thing. And in the pamphlet, it shows you how the design of the Twin Towers were. And also for the dedication of the World Trade Center, Nelson Rockefeller, the, Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, speaks at the dedication ceremony. His brother David, a real estate developer, was instrumental in the dedication. Um, in initiating 
the development of the World Trade Center. And then we have here Lower Manhattan in 1973. The Twin Towers redefined the city skyline and soon took, you know, take on the iconic um, status. Initially criticized for their architecture, the giantism, the quote-unquote giantism, the two soaring towers also became a landmark looming large in the public imagination as a symbol of New York's audacity and virtuality. Audacity and virtuality. All right, so we have here... In 19... 84, Peter Goldmark, executive director, which was from 84 to 85, 1984 to 1985, the Port Authority assesses security threats. The Port Authority of New York, so in 1984, Peter Goldmark, executive director, Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, recognizes the potential susceptibility of the Twin Towers to terrorism and creates an office of special planning OSP to assess the vulnerability to assess this vulnerability. The OSP issues an internal report in November 1985 recommending that the Port Authority ban public parking at the World Trade Center. While the OSP calls the background garage a quote-unquote definite, a definite security risk in the report. It, include, it concludes that terrorist attacks, specifically via garage, are quote-unquote low risk. The report's recommendation to eliminate public parking is not implemented, nor are suggestions such as regarding all garage entrances restricting pedestrians' access, and randomly inspecting vehicles. All right, so we have here, um, July 1989, federal agents track suspects in the Coverton shooting range. Four successive weekends in July 1989, the Federal Bureau, Bureau of Investigations FBI agents follow and photograph a group of men as they move between a mosque in Brooklyn and the Coverton shooting range at Long I- on Long Island. Among these photographed are Mahmoud Abu Abulaim, Nadel Aid, El Savid Nosar and Mohammed Sahim Salahim. Three of them who later helped carry out the February 26, 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. November 5th, 1990. The assassination of Rabbi Mar 
Kahin. On the evening of November 5, 1990, an assassin fatally shoots Rabbi Mar Kahin, founder of the Radical Jewish Defense League. After Kahin delivers a speech in a hotel ballroom in Midtown Manhattan, eyewitnesses identify Eli Saeed Nassar, one of the men federal agents spotted at the Coverton shooting range in in July 1989 as a shooter. Police apprehended Nassar at the trial but at the trial, a jury equates him of murder but finds him guilty of lesser charges, including gun possession, assault, and coercion. Some jurors vote to acquit because officials did not recover the fatal bullets and the prosecution does not present an eyewitness who actually saw the deadly gunshots fired. The judge, however calls the jury's decision, quote-unquote, against the overwhelming weight of evidence and, quote-unquote, devoted, no, not devoted, devote, well, devoid of common sense and logic. He was set, he sentenced Nassar to the maximum term uh, possible for his crimes. While searching for Nassar's Cliffside Park, New Jersey home as part of the investigation, local police seize ammunition, bombing-making literature, and images of New York City landmarks, including department stores, Saks, Fifth Avenue, St. Patrick's Day Cathedral, no, not St. Patrick's Day, St. Patrick's Cathedral, the Twin Towers, and despite some suspicion of larger conspiracy, officials focus on information relevant only to the assassin nation of Callahan. They neither analyze much of the evidence obtained in his home nor investigate potential connections to the larger terrorist um, terrorist network. Nassar, um, associates, Nassar's associates include the men who will go on to bomb the World Trade Center in 1983 and others who plot to attack additional New York landmarks. September 1st, 1992. Ramsey Youssef arrives in New York. The terrorist Ramsey Youssef arrives in pa- from Pakistan at J.F. Kennedy International Airport in New York. After having learned bomb-making skills in Afghanistan, he hopes that high casualty attacks on America will pleasure the U.S. government into withdrawing support for Israel. Fellow terrorist Amid Ajay or Jay, I think so. It's A-J-A- Jay travels to United States with Yusuf. Immigration officials detain Ajay and find counterfeit passports in his luggage, along with bomb-making manuals and several books about combat explosives and weaponry. 
Yusuf presents a false Iraqi passport and proclaims public asylum, swearing he faces grave danger if returned to Iraq. He he passes through security and enters the United States. Aja will spend the next six months in prison for passport violation after being released on March 1st, 1993, three days after Yusuf and his associates bombed the World Trade Center. Late 1992 and early 1993, Ramzi Yusuf prepares attack. Ramzi, like, after moving to the United States, Ramzi Yusuf forms a plan to, tr- to topple the Twin Towers. His accomplices included Ahmed Ajay, who entered the U.S. with Yusuf, allegedly communicates with him while in prison, and Iyad Ismail, a childhood friend living in Dallas, Texas, with whom Yusuf had been in contact since December 1982. Yusuf also recruits four men who were living in New York region. Mahmoud, Mahmoud, Abulaim, Naid Aid, Muhammad Salaha, and Abdul Yassin. Several of Yusuf's co-conspirators are followers of the Shaki Amar Abdel Rahman, a radical cleric that are then active in New York City area. Abdel Rahman advocates violent jihad, a struggle in defense of Islam against government government's failing to rule according to an extreme interpretation of Islam. Yusuf visits the World Trade Center four or five times in the weeks leading up to the bombing, assessing the complex for the best location to place an explosive of the maximum damage. Three days before the attack, Salama Salama rents a Ford No. Where was I? Rents a Ford Ecoline van with a rental agency in New Jersey. Well, in Jersey City, New Jersey. Some, sometime between the day of the rental and February 26th, the plotters loaded a bomb into the van. Morning of February... 26, 1993, the wintry Friday in New York. Friday, February 26, unfolds a cold day in New York City, with temperatures lingering in the mid-20s Fahrenheit. Approximately 50,000 people were inside the World Trade Center complex, and more than 40,000 of them in the Twin Towers. The main public attraction of the towers, the windows of the World Restaurant High in the North Tower, observation deck atop the South Tower and the mall on the below ground concourse level and operating normally are operating normally. Windows on the world's luxurious dining room is open to visitors eager to experience what 
New York magazine once called, quote, unquote, the most spectacular restaurant in the world. The observation deck welcomes kindergartners on a field trip to the public school 95 in Brooklyn, among many other tourists looking for the best elevated views in the city. On the same morning, a group of terrorists led by Ramzi Youssef drives a van loaded with 1,200-pound urea nitrates, urea nitrates bomb into lower Manhattan. Their destination in the world is the World Trade Center. Around 12 p.m., terrorists plant the bomb. A group of terrorists led by Ramzi Youssef drives the, the bomb-laden van in the vast public parking garage below the World Trade Center complex. After parking the vehicle at B-2 level and lighting the bomb's fuse cut long enough to provide them a head start of several minutes, the men escaped the garage in a car driven by an accomplice. Twelve eighteen p.m. The bomb explodes. An explosion rips through the B-2 level of the below-ground parking garage, opening a crater of 150 feet wide and several stories deep beneath the North Tower adjacent Vista International Hotel. People on the top floors of the towers and surrounding buildings feel the force of the explosion. Six people near the bomb are killed. John Giovanni, Robert Kirkpatrick, Stephen A. Knapp, William Macko, Wilfred Mercado, and Monica Rodriguez Smith, who was pregnant. More than 1,000 people are injured, most suffering from smoke inhalation as they evacuate the towers. And in this one, it, in the round 12 p.m., it shows you images of the parking garage and of the parking B2 level. It's pretty big and spacious at the time. And these images were provided by the Department of Justice. So, the FBI has a model of the blast area, so the model created by the FBI illustrates the bomb's blast area from an aerial vantage point. The lower, the tower labeled A is the North Tower 1 Trade Center, and the Tower B is the South Tower 2 World Trade Center. And then they have the Mary Korizaki label pin from the uniform buttons. First, a private um, security guard, supervisor of the World Trade Center, is working on B-Level 1 of the parking garage 
when the force of the explosion one level below throws her off her feet and she remains on duty for many hours assisting evacuees and guiding first responders and investigators to the bomb crater. As a result of her experience, she will suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and be unable to continue her job. Quote, she will she would shake, she would cry. She was no longer able to get into elevators. She could not be confined. Said Janet Remark. Remack Remack on the long-term effects of the 1993 bombing on her sister Mary Korotizaki, who died. And these artifacts are on display on the 9-11 Museum. Then we have these Mira Korotazaki label pin uniform buttons. They're like little buttons. And they're really small. It says Port of New York Authority on them. They're very small. So... They're very, like, very kind of like, they look like cuffs that you wear in a suit. And, um, damaged, uh, damaged a stop sign. Justin Spevy and Gregory Miller, two freshmen at the Cooper Union, a college in New York City, near the, hear the breaking news of the explosion on the radio and decide to investigate. Arriving at the World Trade Center, Unaware they were entering a crime scene, the two students find a pair of mangled stop signs at the top of a ramp leading into the parking garage, then take the signs back into their dormitory. My question is, why would you take a stop sign? That is like part of evidence. Like a mangled stop sign from the explosion of the 1993 bombing. Why would you take it to your, your dormitory at college? Like, that's just wrong. And now it's part of the collection of the 9-11 Memorial Museum. Gift from Justin M. Spevy. I was, quote, I was afraid to look out the window. I thought it was going to see bodies. Andy Jarenko, Lower Manhattan resident. Andy Jarenko, an artist living and working one of the block from the uh, working one block from the World Trade Center, describes the moment the bomb went off. Quote, I was in my studio working on a painting that was such a, a loud, hard explosion. I was afraid to look out the window. I thought I was going to see bodies. It blew out, blew out our bedroom window, and that's how loud that explosion was and jarring. It was like a very compact nuclear bomb. I was very fearful of looking out the window into onto Liberty Street to see what I was going to see. And I started to I I was startled when I saw nothing. Eventually I saw some smoke rising from beneath the Vista Hotel. End quote. Another one was from a stock trader, Timothy Lang, 
recalls parking his SUV in the garage at the very moment the bomb detonates. Injured in the blast, Lang is eventually rescued by police officers and treated at a hospital. Quote, I parked behind a large concrete wall. I opened the door, got out. I was about to reach for my coat, and then the last sanction, sensation I had was equivalent of a crack of lightning. I was physically ripped off my feet and thrown into the air, and as I was unconscious, being thrown through the air, my entire body was compressed as though being squeezed completely on all sides. The air was knocked out of me of me. That was the last thing I remembered." End quote. At 12.20 p.m., first responders arrive at, on the scene. Calls to the emergency dispatchers were pouring in a block south of the World Trade Center. Firefighters of New York City Department FDNY Engine 10 and Ladder Company 10 felt the rumble of the blast, thinking a transformer exploded and they respond to the World Trade Center and confront and comfort and confront, I think it's confront or confront evidence of explosion of the far greater magnitude. Several hundred rescue personnel from various agencies, including the FDNY, New York City Department, NYPD, like the New York City Police Department, NYPD, Port Authority Police, PADP, Pol um, Office Emergency Management, OEM, and New York City Emergency Medical Services, EMS, answer calls to mobilize. Drawing personnel from around the metropolitan area, the response becomes the largest emergency mobilization in the city's history. During the rescue operation, 88 firefighters, 35 police officers, and one EMS worker suffered injuries, almost all from smoke inhalation. And here they show you images of the FDMRI arriving on the scene and that they're kind of taking down the fire. And here you see that like emergency vehicles are everywhere. Like they're literally everywhere. And then another image, like emergency vehicles responding to explosion on the jam explosion jam West Street in which runs alongside the North Tower and the Vista International Hotel. Meanwhile, evacu evacuees stream out of the World Trade Center complex. And here they have at the Memorial at the Memorial Museum, they have Gerard Nevins' turnout coat. Firefighter Gerard Terrence Nevins wears the flame tardant turnout coat when he responds to the World Trade Center bombing. He is the member of the FDMY Rescue Company 1. On an 11, firefighter Nevins will return to the World Trade Center where he will be killed in a line of duty. Around 12.30 p.m., Joint Terrorist Task Force responds. Within minutes of the bombing, Joint Terrorism Task Force and J.I. No, J.T.T.F. 
investigators suspect an act of terrorism and head to the World Trade Center, and they remain on scene for more than three weeks. In response to the 1983 World Trade Center bombing, the JTTF will grow to include more than 40 officers from 10 federal, um, federal, state, and municipal government agencies who coordinates the investigation. And here they have images of a JT of a JTTF hat and pin. The spike of domestic terrorism activity in New York City during the 1970s spurred the information in the 1980 of the organization now known as the Joint, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which integrated the counterterrorism efforts in the NYPD <clears throat> and the FBI leads the World Trade Center bombing investigation. This artifact is now on display in the 9-11 Memorial Museum. Both the pin and the hat. Around 1 p.m., police department begins helicopter rescues, and some of the towers, unable to make a lengthy descendant down dark stairwells, move to the top floors under the direction of first responders and the Port Authority staff. Some of the towers, unable to make lengthy dark stairwells, move the top floors under the direction to the first responders and the Port Authority staff from the rooftops and other course several hours, the NYPD's emergency service unit helicopters, helicopter crews airlift 28 people to safety. Television news outlets capture the rooftop rescues on screen, airing the, the footage again and again. Yeah, they show here in the timeline, it shows images of the smoke in the air and the helicopter rescue right there. And there was notes of the people that they have rescued. Yeah, it says, The Port Authority Police Department Officer Thomas McHale take notes while assisting the South Tower rooftop evacuation. The notes specify... Whether helicopter evacuees are male, marked with M, or female, marked with F. McHale also notes the health conditions of some people, including allergies and cardiac issues. In 1.30 p.m., the towers go dark. The detonation of the bomb causes rolling power failures in the World Trade Center. Around 1.30 p.m., all electricity in the complex is shut off. Emergency genera generators, ventilation systems, and public address systems, address systems become inoperable along with the elevators. With no windows or emergency lights in the stairwells, people still in the tower evacuate in the dark. Their slow progress means a full... Evacuation will take will take hours. The most New York broadcast stations transmit their over-the-air signals of the antennae, no antenna of the North Tower. Where the electricity goes out, the station loses their feeds. By the middle of the afternoon, only WCBS, 
is still in the air using backup equipment at the Empire State Building. Here they have the evacuation flashlight that they used and that Michael Hurley, Port Authority advisor, donated and used on the 107th floor of the South Tower. Um, Janine, um, Janine Alley, a Dean Witter employee, remembers the slow evacuation in the South Tower stairwell. Quote, there was a smoke coming through the vents. You felt the earth shake. We felt the bomb. We didn't know what it was. The person who was my best friend, I remember holding her hand. The stairwells were packed. You couldn't walk down a step until the person in front of you walked down a step. I mean, we were literally back to back. And I remember us counting there wasn't the same number of steps on each landing and you couldn't see. So we were counting out loud and people were yelling at us for doing that. We held each other. I held the rail. She was at the wall and we would count. Okay, this one's eight. This one's eight, this one's seven, this one's eight, this one's seven. And there were people up, up above and we'd be yelling. We need some light. But you know, there are, very, there are very few flashlights and it was pitch black, pitch black. When we got down like on the 14th or the 17th floor, somebody had pried one of the entryways open. And I remember there was a light coming through. There was a little bit of light coming through the stairway. And as we passed it, my girlfriend said to me, Ew, your nose is all black. And I'm like, Ew, what's that? And when we got down, we realized all of our faces were black. End quote. Around 1.35 p.m., five of the six victims were found. John Giovanni, a 45-year-old dental equipment salesman from Long Island, is found injured and taken to St. Vincent's Hospital, where he is pronounced dead. He becomes the fifth known victim in the bombing. D. Giovanni had just parked his car in the garage and had, and when the bomb exploded. Also killed by the bombing were four Port Authority employees who were in off offices in the B-12, no, the B-2 level, separated by a wall from where the terrorists parked the van. There were Robert Kirkpatrick, Stephen A. Knapp, William Mako, and Monica Rodriguez-Smith, who was seven months pregnant. It will be seven days before the police officer, the police discovered the sixth and final victim, Wilfredo Mercado, in the rubble. Okay, now let's read about these people who have died in the 1993 bombing. Born in Brooklyn, Don. John DeGiovanni lived in Valley Stream, Long Island, and his mother, with his with his mother, known for his meticulous 
witness, John detailed her car with detailed his car with a toothbrush. He worked the East um, Coast sales manager at the Kerr Chemicals on February 26, 1903, leading to the sales call. John pulled his car into the World Trade Center's underground parking garage just before a bomb was detonated there. He was 45 years old. Robert Kirkpatrick. Robert Kirkpatrick lived in Suffern, New York, with his wife, Evelyn, skilled in carpentry, plumbing, and locksmithing. He worked at the Port Authority as a senior structural maintenance supervisor. Robert spoke of retiring in November 1993. On February 26th of that year, Robert was in the World Trade Center basement on his lunch break when a bomb exploded in the nearby parking garage. He was 61 years old. Stephen A. Knapp. Stephen A. Knapp lived with his wife, Louise, and their two children in the Staten Island where he had been born. He liked fishing and going to race, going to the racetrack. Stephen had worked at the World Trade Center since it opened and was the Port Authority Authority's chief maintenance supervisor. On February 26, 1983, he was on his lunch break in its basement when a bomb exploded in his nearby, no, in the nearby parking garage. He was 47 years old. William Macko. William Macko lived in Benyon, New Jersey. He and his wife Carol had four children. William was a former U.S. Marine and enjoyed fishing and cooking. He worked for the Port Authority as an assistant chief medical, no, mechanical supervisor for the World Trade Center. On February 26, 1983, William was on his lunch break in the complex basement when the bombing was, when the bombing exploded in the nearby parking garage. He was 57 years old. Monica Rodriguez Smith. Born in Mata, Ecuador, Monica Smith lived in Seaford, Seaford, Long Island with her husband, Edward. She was pregnant with their first child. Monica worked at the World Trade Center as a mechanical unit secretary for the Port Authority. On February 26, 1983, her last day before maternity leave, she was having lunch in the complex basement when a bomb exploded in the nearby parking garage. She was 33 years old. Well, not 33, sorry. She was 35 years old. And as for the sixth victim, Wilfredo Mercado was born in Lima, Peru. Wilfredo Mercado lived in East New York, Brooklyn with his wife, Olga, and their two daughters. Wilfredo worked two jobs at the World Trade Center. Weekends as the win- as windows on the world's purchasing agent and weekends, well, on the weekdays, he worked as windows on the world's purchasing agent and on weekends was a security guard. On February 26, 
1993, he was receiving supplies in the complex basement when a bombing exploded in the nearby parking garage. Wilfredo was 37 years old. After, early afternoon, Mohammed Salahim reports the van stolen. Hours after the bombing, Mohammed Salahim returns to the rental agency in New Jersey, well, in Jersey City, New Jersey, where three days earlier he acquired a new van used to plant the bomb, claiming the vehicle was stolen. He requested it a refund for his $400 security deposit, and he asked to produce a police report to support his claim, and he agrees to come back with one. Around 5 p.m., most civilians have evacuated the tower. More than four hours after the explosion, most of the 40,000 people inside of towers have slowly made their way down down dark, smoke-filled staircases, and finally out of the World Trade Center complex. Some evacuees um, believe a transformer exploded or electrical fire occurred. Here in this one, it shows images of the NYPD officers assisting an evacuee with soot on her face. On their sit on their faces, the New York City officers help a woman leave the World Trade Center vicinity. Um, Walter Travers suit stained shirt. Walter Philip Travers, one of the proximity of seven hundred employees at the bonding trade firm Cantor Fitzgerald, whose offices were on the uppermost floors of the North Tower, spends five hours descending the building's fire stairs after the explosion. He is wearing a cotton shirt that absorbs the smoke during the evacuation. His shirt tail tucked in his pants stays cleaner, and his wife Rosemary will find the stained shirt in his closet after Travers is killed on 9-11 which is now an artifact that is displayed at the 9-11 Memorial Museum. Fleeing the World Trade Center. The bomb causes fire in the garage. The smoke rises through the stairwells and elevator shafts of the Twin Towers. During the evacuation, many people cover their mouths in an effort to avoid inhaling smoke. Susan Baer, a general manager of the Aviation Customer and Marketing Service for the Port Authority, recalls evacuating across the icy World Trade Center Plaza from the Vista International Hotel, where she was visiting a health club when the bomb exploded. Quote, as I'm walking across this plaza, people were breaking windows. There were glass there was glass coming down and those huge trade center windows. So this other woman who was with me, I said, run. And we were running, slipping and sliding across the plaza because there's glass coming down. 
I thought, oh my God, I got cut. I got out of this building and I don't know what's going on and I'm going to get killed by this glass coming down because it was big, heavy pieces of glass and there were maybe three of them, but it scared me to death, end quote. Robert Small, who worked for Dean Witter in the South Tower, talks about the evacuation process. Quote, we decided to leave, but there was no lights. And going down the stairs in total darkness, someone had a pen flashlight that you had to hold with your thumb. And we had to take turns holding the flashlight just for a little bit of glow. Of a glow. You had to count the stairs as you went down. You had to keep your hand on the shoulder of the person in front of you. Just rely on them to tell you that they hit a platform because there would be like two flights of every floor. It was a zigzag stairwell. So you had to let the person behind you landing and then turn. We did Batman trivia on the way down. We had to identify all the bad guys who played the villains and all so that kind of got us through the trip down. And then of course, when we got outside, everyone had the raccoon face from breathing in all the smoke that we couldn't see because we were in total darkness, end quote. p.m. Evacues still trapped in the elevators. Hours after the tower went out, trapping hundreds of people inside darkened elevators may still need to evacuate, still need help evacuating the Twin Towers. Efforts to to free them last until nearby midnight. Many of the tower's elevators operate in blind shafts running For hundreds of feet without entry points. In some cases, rescuers search for the stalled cars one floor at a time, tapping on the walls around the elevator shaft and calling out for a response. Trapped. A group that included kindergartner. Kindergartners visiting the World Trade Center on a field trip in the Brooklyn, from Brooklyn, a weight rescue in the stall elevator. Tom Reynolds, a tourist trapped in, uh, trapped with the children, takes this photograph, which will later appear in the People magazine. The children are rescued around 5.30 p.m. when FDNY Lieutenant James Sherwood locates them in the elevator at the 42nd floor of the South Tower. He cuts a hole in the wall of the elevator shaft, gets on top of the car, and starts to lift the children one by one through the car ceiling hatch. After 12, there are safety out of the shaft. Power is restored to the elevator, and Sherwood climbs into the car 
which descends slowly to the lobby where the rest of the occupants are freed. Car, cylinder, cylinders, handkerchief. A manager at the Port Authority Aviation Department breathes through a handkerchief while he is trapped in the North Tower elevator. The, hand the handkerchief becomes stained with soot. Selinger, Selinger is one of the hundreds of people stuck in the elevators after the explosion. This artifact is now displayed in the 9-11 Memorial Museum. And then... Carl Selinger's goodbye letter. Trapped alone in a dark North Tower elevator that is filling with smoke and fearing he might die, Carl Selinger writes a goodbye letter to his family. Using a piece of loosely paper he finds in his pocket before addressing his wife and kids individually, Selinger begins, quote, A few things I am, am fated to leave you now. I love you very much. Be good people. Do wonderful things in your life. End quote. Rescuer, rescuers free Cylinder around 5.30 p.m., five hours after the blast. Now, this is an artifact at the 9-11 Memorial Museum. Car Cylinder, a manager at the Port Authority Aviation Department, describes being trapped in the North Tower elevator. Quote, Two of those sky lobby elevators came down on the 43rd floor, so I got on one of them, and after about 30 seconds, I felt like a shudder, and it stopped, and there I stood. Now it turned out that I was in that elevator for the next five plus hours. It started to be more smoky, more gradually, very gradually. I took my handkerchief out, and I started putting it over my nose, thinking that would filter the air. And then I started sniffling and I looked at the handkerchief, which was white. And now it was like sooty. And I said, whoa, this is not going, this is not going in the right direction. Then it occurred to me, you know, I might not get out of here. This was serious. I'll probably just get kind of get drowsy and then be unconscious. So then let me write a note to my family. So I looked for a paper. I had in my pocket a single piece of loose leaf paper. So I took it out and I wrote a very methodically a letter to my family. I remember thinking that they're going to be headed, though they're going to be reading this and I probably am not going to be there when they read this. So let me be careful what I say and how I say it, end quote. Eugene Fosfo, a chief engineer of the Port Authority, describes he and several other people escaped a stalled elevator in the North Tower after prying open its doors. Quote, so there, was, there, we are, there we were now, in the dark, still trying to kick a hole through the wall, and we had been unsuccessful. So I said, let's start scratching our way through this wall. And I had the advantage of having been a part of the design team. I knew about this new just bum wall system and I knew it wasn't concrete so using whatever tools we had I used my car keys so we were doing that we came up with another idea we were all wearing beepers 
We took our beepers out and all of a sudden we realized when you push a button on the beeper, there's a small light on those beepers. And the pitch black, there was a little bit of light, gave us enough light to to at least see the wall. And we had no other way of knowing what we were doing. We used the beeper as a light source to light what we were trying to dig a hole through, not knowing where it was taking us either. You don't know what's going on the other side. It could have been another big shaft. You know, an elevator shaft. Actually, it turned out to being a bathroom. By the way, it ended up being a ladies room on the 58th floor. End quote. Seven PM fully powered restored. Port Authority staff work with Con Edison on the power of the company restore of the World Trade Center before nightfall on the day of the bombing. Charles Mankish, the Port Authority World Trade Center Department Director, discusses the significance of restoring power to the complex. Quote, to have the, these towers sit dark against the skyline would have been just the wrong message. The right message was resiliency. Let's show these people that were resilient. And I said, we got to get the towers lit. And we got them lit. It was 7, 8 o'clock. That night, when the towers came back on, when the lights came back on its towers, one thing we did not want was for those two towers to stand dark on the skyline over New York on the 27th of February, um, 1993, and they didn't, end quote. Evening. Ramzi Youssef and Elad Isamol flee the country. The night of the bombing, two of the World Trade Center bombers flee the United States. Ramzi Yusuf uses false passport to catch a flight to Pakistan. Meanwhile, Iyad Isamol fled to Amman, Jordan. The pair leave their other other co-conspirators behind in the U.S. Eleven forty-five. Last evacuees freed from the elevator. While most occupants evacuated from five hours of the noontime bombing, a full evacuation is not complete until eleven forty-five. Nearly twelve hours later, when the emergency personnel free one last group trapped in the South Tower elevator. February, February 27, 1993, Mayor, Governors, and President respond. The following day, the public officials were approaching the consensus that the explosion was caused by a bomb. During his weekly radio address, U.S. President William J. Clinton pledges full federal support from the investigation. Though he does not use the word bomb, twice he says explosion. Clinton suggests that no, it was no accident. Working together, he says, we'll find who was involved and why this happened. New York State Governor Mar- Mario Cuomo, which is um, um, Andrew Cuomo's 
father was in Albany in the state capital of the time of the blast. On the afternoon of February 27th, Cuomo Jones joins other officials at the press conference in Lower Manhattan. The governor tells reporters, it looks like a bomb. It smells like a bomb. It's probably a bomb. New York, New Jersey Governor James Florio adds, if we are entering into a new chapter in American society, one that we've been free from in the past, we're going to have to start thinking about things like access to weapons and explosives and guns with more focused attention. The New York City Mayor David Dinkins flies back to New York from Japan where he was on trade was on a trade mission. After touring the bombing site, he says, I suppose the thing that's most amazing is that more people weren't killed. Even though I knew the dimensions and the toll of injury is more, it's more graphic than you're standing, when you're standing there looking at it, end quote. And here it shows you the pictures of Governor Mario Cuomo visits the World Trade Center and the Dave, and the New York City Mayor David Dinkins returns to New York. And there is a quote from William J. Clinton. President Bill Clinton addresses the bombing in his weekly radio address. Quote, following the explosion, I spoke with New York's Governor Mario Cuomo and New York City Mayor David Dinkins to assure them that the full measure of the federal law enforcement resources will be brought to bear on this investigation. Just this morning, I spoke with the FBI director since secessions will assure me that the FBI and the Treasury Department were working closely with the New York City Police and Fire Departments. Working together, we'll find out who was involved and why this happened. Americans should know We'll do everything in our power to keep them safe in their streets, their offices, and their homes. Feeling safe is essential part of being secure, and that's important to all of us. End quote. February 28, 1983. Investigators find major clue. Investigators search, searching the wreckage in the garage recover several vehicle fragments that, unlike Others they find are from a vehicle that exploded outward. Two of these pieces bear a vehicle identification, number or VIN, a code unique to every car and truck sold in New York States. Well, in the United States. The FBI traces the VIN to Jersey City, New Jersey, rental agency, a van and a van recently reported stolen by a man who rented it, Muhammad Salam, Sal, Salamahai. And it shows you images of the van fragment and the, the investigation and what the FBI was looking at and the damages. The rest... March 4th of 1983, the, arrest, the FBI arrest Mohammed Salamahai. Seeking a refund for his $400 deposit, Mohammed Salamahai re uh, repeatedly returned to New Jersey City, New Jersey, a rent 
rental agency where the rented rented the Raider van used to transport the bomb. By the time of his visit on March 4th, the FBI had traced a fragment of the destroyed van to the agency. Working with the rented office personnel, agents arrest Salama High there. FBI finds Salama High's apartment being traced with phone number. With a, um, trace, after tracing a phone number, he provided at the same time of the rental. Information obtained from the search of the apartment will lead to the arrest of three co-conspirators later in March. Ahmed Aja, who was recently arrested from recently released from prison after serving six months of passport violation, Nada Aid, and Mahmoud Ab Abba Halama, Halama, and the FBI also interviews another suspect, Abdul Yassin before releasing him due to the lack of evidence. Yassine flees to Jordan. He is later in, indicted, but still has not been captured. Now, on March 5, 1993, a chemo, explosive chemicals unearthed in a storage unit. After being called to a self-storage business in Jersey City, New Jersey, by a suspicious employee, the FBI searches one of the units inside. Agents discover chemicals that can be used to manufacture explosives, including urea, nitric acid, and sulfic acid. The chemicals match evidence from the World Trade Center bombing site. Again, March 5th, 1993, New York Times receives claim of responsibility. New York Times receives a letter taking responsibility for the bombing on behalf of a group called themselves the Liberation Army, 5th Battalion. After Nadal Aid, one of the conspirators is arrested on March 10. Hey, my birthday. The FBI matches his DNA to saliva on the letter's envelope. An FBI specialist letter later, sorry, not letter, later um, recovers a document from Aid's work computer that makes reference to the letter received by the New York Times. Ten days later, March 15th, Police recover body of sixth and final victim. The members of the PAPD and a Connecticut State Police K-9 unit found the body of Wilfredo Mercado. Mercado's wife, Olga, has maintained a vigil outside the parking garage every day since the bombing, awaiting news of her husband, the father of her two daughters, the number of Victim is now six, which, while rescue personnel located five of those killed within hours of the explosion, the search for Marcado continued for 17 days. He was last seen near garage-level loading dock 
where he supervised deliveries to the windows on the World Restaurant. Three days later, March 18, 1983, the South Tower reopens. Which, when they reopened the South Tower, they had souvenirs, like a packaging of welcome back and all that stuff, and a cup and a souvenir pin. And the New York State Governor Mario Cuomo is at his desk in the South Tower, and the observation deck reopens. With a crew of 2,700 working around the clock to clean and repair the towers, the World Trade Center's South Tower reopens less than a month around the bombing. New York State Governor Mario Cuomo and his staff have offices on the 57th floor led the re-entry. Other South Tower tenants who began to move in this month include the Fiduciary Trust Company, Trust Company Dean Witter and Fuji Bank. Fuji, I think it's Fuji. For the poor authority and many other, uh, no, and many returning tenants, maintaining a sense of optimism and solidarity is paramount. The poor authority assesses, no, eases its tenants return to the towers by distributing welcome back mugs, umbrellas, coupons, booklets for discounts in the shopping mall, and other items. While the South Tower reopens to tenants in March, its observation deck remains closed until April. John Mullock, manager of the contract and consultant service of the World Trade Center, talks about the agency's efforts to make the complex feel safe. The objective, quote, the objective was when people begin to move back to the Trade Center, that they could see no signs of the blast. So if there wasn't, so if it wasn't repaired, it was covered up, and there were all sorts of things that were done to make people feel welcomed back, to make people feel secure, just to make people feel secure. And we thought we were secure, but we didn't want people to have a lot of angst and a lot of concern as they were going back into the spaces. And we really wanted to demonstrate to them that they were going back to the space that was secure and that we would have done everything that we could and were in the process of doing what we could to correct the damage and make the improvements and make people feel welcomed back, end quote. Janine Alley, a Dean Witter employee, describes her feelings about returning to the World Trade Center. Quote, when we went back in 93, that was really weird to go back to the building. And I was really nervous. But again, I think I had 30 people working for me at the time. So you have to be a leader and put on your best face. We had 
some conversations. If you don't feel you can go back in the building, that's okay. Those types of thing, those types of things. There are people on site to build to help people who are nervous. So being back in the building, then people had a flashlight at their desks. You never went off the floor without your pocketbook or your wallet. I remember I could travel to meetings with my purse, whereas before 1993, it never would have crossed my mind. April 1st, 1993, the North Tower reopens and we have a memorial lapel pin that is shown here and also a sponge used to clean in cleanup effort and Douglas Karpoloff jacket and hat. Five weeks after the bombing and two weeks after the South Tower reopens its doors to tenants, the North Tower follows suit. In total, the rest the restoration of both towers cost $250 million. Reopening the windows on the World Restaurant is delayed post this date because the Port Authority hires Joseph Bum, the restaurant's original designer, to renovate the space and reinvent the menu. And it reopened in 1996, three years after. Randolph Ho- Hohenfeld, a Port Authority employee, shares his memories of the reopening of the World Trade Center. Quote, it was great. It was a glorious moment. Hallelujah. We were back in operation, back to life. People were perhaps getting more normalcy back in their routine. It was great. We, you come out of the darkness into the light. You reestablished life again as it was. And never... It'll never be the same for us who lost part of our family, but for others, great. End quote. September, well, spring, actually, in 1993, Port Authority begins safety and security grades. They have emergency preparedness. After the bombing of the Port Authority, security team improves the emergency preparedness at the World Trade Center as the darkening stairwells made evacuation difficult and lengthy, and the agency installs battery-powered lights and luminescent paint on the handrails. This artifact is now displayed at the the 9-11 Memorial Museum. And then we had emergency preparedness pamphlets. Like there were like safety guides for them. And that was in October of 1983. Building Improvement Security. Port Authority endeavors to strengthen security at the World Trade Center after bombing. Tenants receive encoded photo identification cards as guests were required to check in at the security desk. The Port Authority presents the presents this change as a press briefing under a poster depicting the new security IDs. The poster features the image of the World Trade Center's program manager 
of Security Systems, Douglas Jean Karpiloff, who oversees many of the security and safety upgrades. Karpiloff will later be killed in an attack of September 11, and now it's this artifact is now on display at the 9-11 Memorial Museum. Visitors check in at security desk and obtain badges in the image. Dean Witter security office official recommends change. Randall Surreal Roscola was in charge of the security for Dean Witter, a South Tower tenant. One day of the bombing, on the day of the bombing, he led the evacuation of its employees. After the bombing, Roscola produces a report that warns the risk posed to Dean Witter by remaining remaining in the World Trade Center and advises that the company relocate a low-rise headquarters in New Jersey. The company declines, and on 9-11, Roscola will direct the evacuation of employees at the firm, then known as Morgan Stanley. Many will credit Roscola's planning and helping them survive. Roscola will be killed in the attacks. But as it was spring of 1983, and the Port Authority began safety and security upgrades. In response to the attack, the Port Authority begins to ban public parking in the underground garage, installs bollards around the periphery of the complex, and begins to re-fireproof steel in the towers, among other changes, after darkening, after darkened smoke smoke filled stairwells and a failed public address system contributed to a disorganized slow evacuation on February 26. The Port Authority aims to make evaluation well evacuations faster, safer, safer and more efficient. It works to reduce evacuation time to less than 1 hour. April 21, 1983, FBI adds Rosamin Youssef the most wanted list. The hunt for Ramzi Youssef. After Ramzi Youssef frees the country and the U.S. government launches the global manhunt offering $2 million for information leading to his capture, the U.S. Department of uh, State creates the matchbook bearing Youssef photograph and offering reward information leading to his arrest. And they distribute the matchbook worldwide. The State Department also produces posters to other hemisphere. Hemispheria. They even have it like on like newspapers. All that stuff. Even the poster is like help us find the missing terrorist before he finds more innocent victims. While poor authority repairs and reopens the towers, lead conspirator Ramzi Youssef remains at large. The FBI adds him to the most wanted list on April 21, 1993. Over the next two years, Youssef will add to his resume of the terrorist activity, including the assassination 
attempt against the Prime Minister of Pakistan and the bombing of the of an aircraft to the to test a larger plot to blow up eleven American commercial airliners over the Pacific and and planned assassinations of the US President William J. Clinton and Pope John Paul II. June 14th, 1983, FBI foils landmark plot. As part of the ongoing and ongoing surveillance operation, an FBI camera captures followers of the radical cleric Shaka Omar Abdel Rahman, Rahman constructing a bomb in a garage in Queens, and they are in the midst of planning a coordinated assault on landmarks, political figures, and commuter arteries in New York City, including the George Washington Bridge and United, the United Nations headquarters. A federal trial against the conspirators will begin on January 1995 in front of the judge Michael B. Menesque, a of United States District Court for the Southern District of New York. Prosecutors will characterize the World Trade Center bombing as the, as one episode in the large conspiracy to bomb landmarks as some of the World Trade Center conspirators are followers of the Abdel Rahman, Rahman on October 1st of the same year after nine months of testimony a jury will convict Abdel Rahman and nine of his associates including L. Saeed Nassar for various offenses related to the conspiracy. October 14th. The footage of the conspirators plotting to bomb landmarks as part of the ongoing operation. An FBI camera captures followers of the Shaka Omar Abdel Rahman plotting a series of terrorist attacks from a garage in Queens. And another picture so shows Shalaka or Shaika Omar Abdel Rahman and co-conspirators on trial. And then we have October 4th opening statements delivered in the bombing trial with Ram, um, with Ramzi Youssef and Abdul Yassin and Iyad Ismail sit on the run, still on the run, the United States begins its trial against the four per- perpetrators of the World Trade Center bombing in custody. Mahmoud Ab Ab Ahalama Ahmed Ahada Nadal Aid and Mohammed Salaha Salahama. More than two hundred witnesses are called to testify during the trial which takes place in front of the judge Kevin T. Duffy in the United in the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of New York. The first witness called for the prosecutors and Charles Meekish, director of the Port Authority World Trade Department, 
quote, I felt a heavy, I felt a heaving in the tower itself. He testifies, I knew I had, I knew we had a very major event, end quote. The trial lasted six months. At its conclusion on March 4th, 1994, the four defendants are found guilty in all counts. On May 14th, 1994, Judge Duffy sentences each of them for 240 years in prison, factoring in the combined life expectancies of six people killed in the 1993 bombing. And there, in this one, it shows Edward Smith's impact statement and picture, well, a depiction, a drawing of the sentencing, the bombers, like with the judge and the four bombers that were captured. September 13, 1984, President Clinton expands death penalty. President the U.S. President William J. Clinton signs into the law a bipartisan a violent crime control and law enforcement act of 1994. In response to the bombing of the World Trade Center and the unrelated Unabarma attacks in 1983, the bill contains several measures intended to combat terrorism. It also includes the Federal Death Penalty Act of 1994, which expands the roster of crimes eligible for punishment by death, making terrorism a capital offense. November 1994, Vista International Hotel reopens. The bomb that damaged the Twin Towers destroyed parts of Vista International Hotel at 3 World Trade Center. The hotel remains closed for almost two years. Renovation and repairs cost $65 million and involve replacing 200,000 square feet of concrete floor. On the day the hotel reopens, more than 200 guests have reservations, with thousands of more booked for the following weeks. December 11, 1984. Philippine Airlines Flight 434 no, bombed. Still at large and living in Man- Manila, the Philippines World Trade Center bombing co-conspirator Ramazi, or I think it's Ramazi, sorry, I've been butchering people's names the whole entire time, which I'm not saying I apologize for it, like I normally do, but these people were um, terrorists, so I'm not going to apologize for that, but they're also Arab, I believe, I think, I don't know, I'm not quite sure, but Ramazi Yusuf plants a bomb on the Philippine Airlines Flight 434, this is a trial run for the Bonishka plot, which is known as the Mania Air plot, a scheme devised by Yusuf, his uncle Khalid Shah Aka Muhammad, his associates Wali Khan, Amin Shah, and Abul Hakim. Murad and others, Khalid Shakam Muhammad, names the plot after the nonsense world, um, nonsense word he picked up in Afghanistan. The plot calls for five terrorists to plant bombs 
on 11 American airlines that would explode over the Pacific Ocean. Yusuf's attack on Flight 434 kills one passenger and injures 10 others. The flight crew safely lands the aircraft after Filipino police discover and disrupt Yusuf's Malia base bomb making operation the next month later progress on the Bajonka plot stalls while the plan never comes to fortune Khalid Shaka Muhammad will use it as a inspiration for the 9-11 attacks January 6 1995 Filipino police discover plot and crucial evidence the police in Manila, the Philippines, respond to smoke conditions in Ramazi Yusuf's apartment. There, they discover bomb-making materials and other de- evidence. Abdul Hakim Murad, Yusuf's associate, returns to the apartment to recover Yusuf's laptop. The police apprehend Murad. The laptop contains details of the Bajunka plot, a draft of a letter in which Yusuf claims responsibility and the names of nearly all involved, and it will prove to be crucial evidence in the U.S. government's case against the conspirators. February 7, 1995, Ramazi Yusuf captured in Pakistan. In early 1995, the, I can't even pronounce it, the Istanbul. Park, an associate of Roman's, um, hold on, itchy, uh, Ramazi Yusuf's living in Pakistan contacts the United States Embassy in Ishamabad to offer himself as an informant. FBI agents abroad work closely with the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Diplomatic Security, DS, and the Drug Enforcement Administration. DEA to apprehend Yusuf on February 7th using intelligence from Parker, Pakistan. Pakistani and American law enforcement officers arrest Yusuf as he prepares to leave Islamabad, Islamabad for the city of Peshawar, Pakistan. Almost six months later, Jordan Officials also apprehend his accomplice in the World Trade Center bombing, Iyad Isamol. The U.S. government extradites Yusuf to New York in a helicopter flight past. In a helicopter? Oh, sorry, hold on. Flight past the World Trade Center on February 8, 1995. An FBI agent reminds Yusuf that the towers are still standing. Yusuf responds that they would not be if he had enough money. Basically, Ramazi Yusuf made a threat that they wouldn't be standing if I had enough money to make more bombs. Jeffrey Rainier, a special agent from the Department of State Diplomatic Security Service, describes the arrest and identification of Ramazi Yusuf as a guest house at a guest house in Pakistan. Quote, the DEA agent and I made the initial entry in the house. 
we went downstairs and they had this individual over against the curtain and they turned him around and there was a gentleman there called himself a bridge uh no bridge a dadder no adder and he grabbed Yusuf and brought him over turned him around in front of me and said this is him will you identify him so I had given a picture of the file that the RSO had in his office of Yusuf and that very same photograph that's on the matchbook it turns out I had ended up using it to identify him but I identified him to the Pakistan bridge ad er who told me in no uncertain terms that unless I did that, they weren't going to do anything. So I identified him, and at that point in time, they took him out. So after we made the initial identification, and Yusuf was still in the room between the identification and him leaving, that is when the, the other officials who are part of the group down the street pulled up in front of the house, and I specifically remember giving the legate legate of the thumbs up that we had indeed been successful we had apprehended yusuf end quote february 9th 1995 ramazi yusuf makes first court appearance and there's also an image a depiction of ramazi yusuf and yad ismail on trial and Ramazi Youssef enters a plea of not guilty in his first appearance in federal district court in New York City. He faces two separate trials. One for his involvement in the Bujanka plot and one for the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. In the opening statements during the World Trade Center bombing trial, prosecutors tell the jury that Youssef wanted... wanted... To quote unquote send a message to Americans that they were at war. February 26, 1995, Memorial Dedication to Bombing Victims. A memorial fountain is erected on the World Trade Center Austin J. Tobin Plaza, directly above the site of the explosion. New York City based artist. Elon Zimmerman designs the memorial which follows the creation of the temporary memorial of the Port Authority staff in March 1993. Arrayed around the fountain are the names of the six victims, John Dio Giovanni, Robert Kirkpatrick, Stephen A. Knapp, William Mako, Wilfredo Mercado, Monica Rodriguez-Smith, and her unborn child. In addition, there is an inscription in Spanish, the native language of two that are killed in an English. On February, quote, on February 26, 1983, a bombing set by terrorists exploded below this site. This horrible act of violence killed innocent people, injured thousands, and made victims of us all, end quote. Six and a half years later, the fountain will be destroyed on 9-11.
April 24th, 1986, anti-terrorism bill becomes law. Early in 1985, U.S. President William Jen Clinton sent the ambient ambious character. I can't even pronounce it anymore. <laughs> oh man, I can't even pronounce it. It's fine. It's fine. Anti-terrorism bill becomes law. In early 1985, the U.S. President William J. Clinton sends the OMBS Counterterrorism Counterterrorism Act of 1995 in Congress, where it failed to fail not failed to fail failed in committee. After the April 19 uh, April 25th 1985 bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building and Oklahoma City in response and growing concerns about terrorism inspired in part of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing the U.S. government passes the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996. The law seeks to quote-unquote deter terrorism provide justice for victims and provide for an effective death penalty end quote. It amends the United States Code to significantly restrict the ability of defendants in criminal cases to chain to challenge their convictions using habeas corpus and prohibit providing quote unquote material support or resources to de- designate foreign terrorist organizations. January eighth, nineteen ninety eight, judge sentenced. Ramazi Yusuf. Jury finds Ramazi Yusuf and his co-conspirators Abdul Hakim Murad and Walika Amin Shah guilty of conspiracy for the Bajanka plot of September 5th, 1996. Another jury finds Yusuf and Yad Isamal guilty of their involvement in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing on November 12, 1997. Given an opportunity to address the court before sentencing in January 1998, Ramazi himself declares, quote, yes, I am a terrorist and I'm proud of it. And I support terrorism as so long as it was against the United States, um, against the United States government and against Israel, end quote. Judge Kevin T. Duffy of the United States District Court of the Southern District of the New York sentence Yusuf for both trials to life in prison plus 240 years, factoring in combed life expectancies for six people killed in a 1993 bombing. Five of the six convicted World Trade Center bombers are still serving their sentences at maximum security prison in Colorado, while the six Nadal Aid served in Indiana. The U.S. government considers the 1993 bombing an open case because the seventh alleged um, conspirator, Abdul Yassin, who fled the United States in March 96, remains at large. Now, we fast forward to two years. Well, yeah. Two, three years, four years, yeah, three years, actually. 
September 11, 2001, terrorist attack on the World Trade Center again. On September 11, 2001, terrorists hijack and fly two commercial airliners filled with passengers and crew into the Twin Towers. Safety enhancements made by the Port Authority after the 1993 bombing, including the implementation of the Fire Warden Program and improvements to stairwell lighting, helped thousands of people to evacuate, many in less than one hour. The attack on 9-11 resulted in the collapse of the Twin Towers and are part of the coordinated assault on American political, financial, and military landmarks using hijacked planes. The attacks killed 2,977 people. Two thousand five, two thousand eleven. Court way, courts way. Port authorities' responsibility. In the years following the nineteen ninety three bombing of the World Trade Center, more than four hundred individuals sued the Port Authority for failing to protect the World Trade Center. Most notably, by not closing the parking garage to the public before the bombing occurred in February nineteen ninety three. A jury in New York State Supreme Court finds the plaintiff. In 2005, a decision that is upheld in 2008, the New York State Court appeals ultimately overturns the ruling in 2011. Again, September 11th, 2011. National September 11th Memorial honors victims of both attacks. The memorial of the victims of 1993 bombing was destroyed in September 11 in the September 11, 2001 attacks. But designers of the 9/11 memorial include the 1993 victims and design plans. And the si- the six of the 1993 victims names joined the 2000 and 977 victims from 9-11 on the bronze panels that board border the memorial's two reflecting pools. These names appear on the panel of the North Pool due to the North Tower's proximity to the location of the bomb blast. Three years later, the only remaining fragment of the 1993 bombing memorial fountain recovered from ground zero will find a permanent home in the new open National September 11th Memorial Museum. The fragment includes the beginning of the name of John DiGiovanni, one of six killed in the, in the bombing. Okay, now we have the last one of the 1983 World Trade Center bombing timeline. February 26th, Every year, six victims are remembered. Each year of the anniversary of the World Trade Center bombing, the Port Authority holds a memorial service at the St. Peter's Roman Catholic Church near the site. Following the service, a moment of silence is observed at 12.18 p.m., the time of the bombing exploded. Since the opening of 9-11 Memorial in 2011, 
attendees have followed the movements of silence with a visit to the memorial where the six victims' names engraved in a bronze panel at the North Pole of the memorial are read aloud. Attendees also place roses at the victims' names. Now we're going to go to September 11 tech timeline. So, we have here at 9.45 in the morning, hijackers pass through security screening in Portland, Maine. On the morning of September 11th, a total of 19 terrorists will hijack four Californian-bound commercial plane, airplanes shortly after their departure from airports in Boston, Massachusetts, New York, New, Newark, New Jersey, and the Washington, and the Washington D.C., Metropolitan area. Hijackers Moed Ada and Abdul Azi Alamar passed through the security at Portland International Jetport in Maine at 9:45 a.m. Ada and Alamar aboard no board a commuter flight to the Boston Logan International Airport, where they connect to American Airlines Flight 11. Three other hijackers were joined Ada and Alamar aboard Flight 11. Less than two hours later, five terrorists who, att- who hijack American Airlines Flight 77 on videotape as they pass through Washington, Dulles International Airp- um, Airport's West Checkpoint, three of the hijackers, Nuaf Al-Hazim, Khalid Al-Mayhadar, and Majid Moakid, Moakid set off metal detectors, but no weapons were found. They processed, they proceed to the gate. The hijackers were carrying concealed knives in, on their persons or in their carry-on luggage. Before 9-11, airports were not required to videotape security checkpoints. At that time, knives were allowed on airplanes if the blades were less than four inches in length. Now, 6 a.m., New York polling station opens because there was a primary election day in New York City. So, yeah, and at that time, it was Democratic which was Mayor Mark Green, Public Advocate Scott M. Stringer, and Comptroller Herbert E. Berman. And column four was Democratic Borough President June M. Eisenland. And City Council was G. Oliver Koppel. And Judge of the the Civil Court, 2nd District, was Larry Um. I can't pronounce it for the life of me. Schlotzinger. So that was going on at the time. Around 6 in the morning. And then 7.59 in the morning. Flight 11 takes off. American Airlines flight takes off to Boston. No, takes off from Boston. And 11 crew members... 76 passengers and five hijackers were on board. The aircraft is still filled with seven 
76,400 pounds of fuel for its transcontinental run to to Los Angeles. Now at 8.15 in the morning, flight 175 takes off. The United Airlines flight 175 takes off from Boston for Los Angeles. Nina, no, not Nina, nine crew members, 51 passengers, and five hijackers were on board as well. And the flight is loaded with 76,000 pounds of fuel, which is considerably a lot based on the information that we know that they both hit one of the buildings. And if you've watched documentaries on 9-11, like I have, you would hear that from other people that were exiting the building, there was liquid dropping from the stairwell. And that they smelled was like, kind of like gas-like fuel. And they didn't know where... Like, they know where it was coming from, what floor it was coming from, but they didn't know what hit the building until someone said, holy shit, a plane just hit our building. So, yeah. Okay, where did I leave off? Um, I'm not quite sure, but I think you were off at 8.15? 15, you said something about 8.15 in the morning that um, something happened at 8.15. Oh, yes. <laughs> totally forgot. Um, that at 8.15 in the morning, flight 175 takes off. Takes off from Boston to Los Angeles. With, again, 51 passengers and 5 hijackers on board at the same time. And with a ranging of 76,000 pounds of fuel. But then four minutes later, at 4.19, not 4.19, but 8.19 in the morning, flight 11 crew members contact ground personnel. Flight attendant Betty Ann Ong of its American Airlines grounds personnel to hijacking underway on flight 11, reporting that the cockpit is unreachable. Using an in-flight phone, Ong transmits detailed information about the hijacking on the call, which lasts about 25 minutes. Shortly before Ong's call, a hijacker, likely Satam al Sakwami, had stabbed the passenger's seat directly in front of him in first class. Hijackers Ahmed Atta and Abu Azi Alamari were seated in close proximity as well. The passenger was identified as Samuel N. Lewin by the flight crew and had served four years in the Israel Army. The final report of the National Commission of Terrorist Attacks upon the United States speculates that he may have tried to stop the hijackers. Lewin was likely the first person killed in 9-11 attacks at 12, at 12, but it wasn't at 12, it was at 8.21 in the morning, two minutes before Ong's call. The hij- two minutes into Ong's call, the hijackers turn off the plane's transponder, a device that allows the tra- air traffic control to identify and monitor an airplane's flight path. 
Meanwhile, the American Airlines authorities relay rely details on Ong on the operation center in Texas. Five minutes later, Ong provides the hijackers seat numbers at American Airlines. After several failed connections at 8.32 in the morning, flight attendants Mel Laudina or um, Amy Sweeney reports the hijacking of Flight 11 to a friend on the ground. A manager at the Boston Logan International Airport over the course of approximately 12 minutes, Sweeney provides key information about the hijacking, including description of the perpetrators. Then we have at 8.20 in the morning, Flight 77 takes off, which is in from en route from Los Angeles and well, is, in, is going, well, sorry, correction, it's Taking off to go to Washington, no, taking off from Washington, going to Los Angeles. Um, Dulles International Airport, six crew members, 53 passengers and five hijackers are on, on the board, and the flight is loaded with 49,900 pounds of fuel. And there was like a squirrel group boarding the flight 77 and they died as well on the plane. And then there was a seating chart of American Airlines flight 77. It tells you who was on the plane and where were they sitting and where their numbers were. And um... 24 in the morning, Flight 11 hijack transmits a trans- and transmits a message. Attempting to communicate with passengers and crew inside Flight 11's cabin, hijacker Hamid Atta presses the wrong button and broadcasting instead to air traffic control and unwittingly alerting controllers to the attacks. Minutes later, Atta, Atta again makes an up unintended transmission to ground control. At least one of Ada's transmission is picked up by the pilot of Flight 175, Victor J. Saracity, who will inform the Federal Aviation Administration of what he heard minutes before his own plane is hijacked. This is from this is an actual quote from the audio of the hijacking. Radio transmissions unintentionally broadcast to air traffic control by hijacker and Hamid Atta. A24 quote: "We may, we have some planes. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are returning to the airport." End quote. Seconds later, quote, nobody move, everyone will be okay. If you try to make any moves, you endanger yourself in the airplane. Just stay quiet. End quote. 8.34 a.m. Quote, nobody moves. We're going back to the airport. Don't try to make any stupid moves. End quote. 
at one at eight thirty the World Trade Center comes to life. Morning activities have commenced at the World Trade Center, a commercial building complex in Lower Manhattan owned by the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, an interstate agency. In addition to signature Twin Towers 1 and 2 World Trade Center, the complex included included a Hotel 3 World Trade Center, 4 office buildings, 4, 5, 6, and 7 World Trade Center, a shopping mall, restaurants, public plaza, and a major transportation hub. At eight, around 8.30 in the morning, roughly 80 people have gathered to attend the Risk Waters Group Financial Technology Conference on 160th floor of North Tower. 72 restaurant staff were, have arrived in advance of the morning breakfast service and conference preparation. Other special events at the World Trade Center planned. September 11th include an annual National Association for Business Economics conference already underway in the Marriott Hotel, an evening dance performance at the World Trade Center's Outdoor Plaza, and a Peace Corps information session scheduled for 6 p.m. in the World in the Six World Trade Center. And it shows you images of the water. Financial Technology of Congress pamphlet, the Evening of the Stars Dance, and then they have the map of the World Trade Center. Which is pretty nice. It's like, basically, it's kind of like, it's a weird outlay of the map. It's like three, it's like a, a weird bented L shape. World Trade Center, and then the, the Twin Towers, one is in front of the three, and, and on the back downside is the second Twin Tower. And then they have the other four buildings. So. At 8.37, Boston Air Traffic Control Center alerts the military. After hearing the hijackers, Ahmed Adda's transmission, Boston Air Traffic Control Center alerts the U.S. Air Force's Northeast Air Defense Sector needs headquarters in Rome, New York. In response, needs mobilizes Air National Guard jets at Otis Air Force Base in Falmouth, Massachusetts to identify and follow hijacked Flight 11. Now... Fast forward a few minutes later, 8.42 in the morning, Flight 93 takes off. Scheduled to leave Newark National Airport within minutes of the other hijacked flights. United, United Airlines Flight 93 takes off after a delay due to routine traffic. Seven crew members with 33 passengers and four hijackers were on board the San Francisco bound flight, which is filled with 48,700 pounds of fuel. 9.46 in the morning. Five hijackers crash American Airlines on Flight 11 into 
floors 93 through 99 of the World Trade Center North Tower. The 76 passengers and 11 members of the, on board and hundreds inside the building were killed instantly. The crash severed all three emergency stairwells and traps hundreds of people above the 91st floor. So they have video of the of it. Like literally they have video of it here. Hold on. Take out these headphones. morning and a plane just crashed into the World Trade Center and smoke's pouring out the side for this huge boom very scary and we saw turned out looked out the window and flames were pouring out of the hole extremely scary um, we're listening to it on the news you can hear fire sirens outside and smoke's pouring out I don't know if you heard that, but let me, let me play it again. It's a Tuesday morning and a plane just crashed into the World Trade Center and smoke's pouring out the side. For this huge boom, very scary, and we saw, it turned out, looked out the window and flames were pouring out of the hole. Extremely scary. Um, we're listening to it on the news. You can hear fire sirens outside and smoke's pouring out. So basically it says at 8.46 in the morning, quote unquote, a plane just crashed into the World Trade Center after hearing the roaring of the, the plane engines and then crash. The Manhattan resident Suzanne Chaplin retrieves her home video camera and focuses on the World Trade Center's North Tower. The sounds of confused radio reports audible in the background for cop. Copchin's um, video echoes her own anxious reminiscence. Shortly thereafter, Copchin's leaves her apartment located near the World Trade Center, picks up her child from this, from school, and finds short-term refuge in the Rockefeller, Rockefeller Park and about a half a mile away. And then... They have another video.
So in the video, um, being that you guys cannot see or like see what's happening in the video, but in the video it shows um and um a woman recording it saying like a man just said planes hit the world like a plane hit the world trade center and tower and I just can't believe it I can't can't even believe it so and she like kind of later on zooms in into the building showing the smoke showing everything that was happening in the building and um then it says like about the smoke coming up from the building to the top of the roof so it says quote unquote I can't believe it Tribeca resident Carolyn Carolyn Kamakopa is doing laundry in her apartment building in 15 blocks north of the World Trade Center when she hears her husband scream grab your camera Grab your video camera. A jet plane just flew into one of the towers. Scooping up her camera. Kamakopa steps outside to fix his and fixes her lens on her burning on the burning North Tower. As specters converge on the sidewalks around her. And then we have another one. What's on it's on the video? Basically, we have a lot of smoke at the top of the towers of the World Trade Center. WCBS radio, News Radio 180 traffic reports Tom Kamaski describes the disaster unfolding on the World Trade Center after the crash hijacked Flight 11, two anchors and Pat Carroll and Jeff Kaplan from Chopper 1. 80. Tom Komoski says, all right, Pat, we were just currently getting a look at the World Trade Center, and we have something that has happened here at the World Trade Center. We noticed flame and a lot of smoke from one of the towers of the World Trade Center. We were just coming up on the scene, and this is, this is really three quarters of the way up. Whatever has occurred had just occurred within minutes, and we were trying to determine exactly what it is. But currently, we have a lot of smoke at the top of the towers of the World Trade Center, and we will keep you posted. They have a full transcript of it on the World the Memorial, the Memorial website, the 9-11 Memorial website, and they have a picture of the whole the tower burning so the north tower after the crash of flight 11 flight 11's impact severs all three emergency stairwells trapping hundreds of people above the 91st floor investment firm fred alger management and insurance company marsh and mclean have offices in impact zones 35 fred alger employees in 290 employees, 64 consultants, contractors, and affiliates of Marsh are killed in the attack. 96 employees of the car 
features of with office directly above the impact zone on an, on the 92nd floor also also die bond trading firm cantor fitzgerald which occupies the floors 101 and 105 suffers with a larger death toll with any single organization 658 employees and 48 consultants contractors and affiliates die as well so then we have in 8.46 in the morning, responders mobilize and North Tower evacuation begins. The New York City Emergency Dispatches send police, paramedics, and firefighters to the North Tower. Immediately after witnessing the crash of 14 blocks north of the World Trade Center, Bellaton Chief Joseph Pafiler directs New York City Fire Department. Dispatch to issue a second alarm and route to the scene. He signals a third alarm, which calls for 28 engine ladder company, 12 chiefs, and 10 specialized units to respond to plane crash at box 8887. The FDNY short land reference for the World Trade Center. The vehicle drivers are instructed to park adjacent to the North Tower. The Port Authority Police Department, PAPD, respond to the safety and security of the World Trade Center in addition to regional bridges, tunnels, airports, and the Port of New York and New Jersey mobilized in response to the attack. Additional additional PAPD units from another post dispatch in the World Trade Center to aid in evacuation and rescue. Here we have from WCBS News Radio 180 producer Kelly Edwards and Jeff Kaplan, a news anchor, describes the response of the emergency at the World Trade Center. Kelly Edwards said, quote, I just, I'm just about 15 blocks north of the World Trade Center right now on the 7th, on 7th Avenue. Five trucks were screaming down 7th Avenue trying to get this fire it looks like the fire is about 10 blocks from the from the excuse me 10 stories from the top of the building flames are shooting out smoke is pouring out the gash goes from one side of the building practically all the way to the other you can see thick black smoke pouring out of the front of the building to the north side you can also see it coming out of the west side it's certainly cutting off the entire top of the building right now, and it's completely covered with smoke. You can barely see the top of the building. You can see flames shooting out of each east on the east side of that gash. The gash seems to be getting bigger. End quote. 9.50 in the morning. U.S. President is alerted of this. While visiting an elementary school in Sarasota, Florida, U.S. President George W. Bush is informed that a small plane has hit the North Tower. Bush and his advisors assume that the crash is a tragic accident. Then, at 8.55 in the morning, South Tower is declared secure. Quote, 
your attention, please. Ladies and gentlemen, building Tower 2 is secure. There is no need to evacuate building 2. If you are in the midst of a valley evacuation, you must use your re-entry doors and elevators to return to your office. Repeat, building 2 is secure. Unquote. Announcement made by the Port Authority of Safety, um, Fire Safety Employee via the South Towers Public Address System at approximately 8.55 in the morning. Then we have uh, 8.59 in the morning, PAPD. Orders evacuation of Twin Towers. PAPD Sergeant Al Davona issues orders to commence the evacuation of both towers. One minute later, PAPD Captain Anthony Whittaker Whitaker expands the order to include all civilians in the World Trade Center complex. Then we have a quote. We have, I couldn't imagine these firefighters go up there into God knows what. Constance Labatty, an online corporation employee in the South Tower, recalls how she felt while watching first responders enter the building enter her building. Quote, then the firefighters started to come up and they would holler, move to the right, move to the right. I think it was probably about the 40th floor when the firefighters started to come up. And I remember thinking they wanted to climb all the way up to 80. How are they going to do that? A few people clapped. A few people wished them blessings, God blessings, and a few people patted them on the shoulder. People shouted to go to the 68th floor where there's a handicapped person and giving them information or giving them information and they just were stone faced, just look straight ahead. They really didn't show any emotion much emotion. I could imagine these firefighters going up there into God knows what. End quote. Then they show poor authority badges or like the World Trade Center badges. They have like identification cards belonging to survivors. Bruno Dellinger evacuates the consulting firm Quaint Amasis in the 47th floor of the North Tower. Upon reaching the street, Dellinger is caught in the debris of collapsing South Tower. The FBI agent rescues Dellinger from the dust cloud, following him into the triage center set up inside a nearby bank branch. Hearing that the biological attack, the FBI agent instructs Dellinger to visit a hospital for anthrax screening. Then we have another one. Whether it was a long time Port Authority employee, Barbara Lennon-Cone. Lennon-Cone Ramos managed the shopping mall and the concourse beneath the World Trade Center. On 9-11, she feels the effects of the impact on that of Flight 11 more than 90 floors above and observes the plaster ceiling comb overhead and Laura Comb Ramos initiates an evacuation of customers and staff from the stores and attempts to establish communication with the Port Authority Command Center. Using the handheld radio that morning, she hears the voices of colleagues high in the North Tower and of those trying to help them. And we have another one, another quote saying, no skin, no hair, no birth.
Bruno Dellinger, founder of the company Quint Amesis, both negative on the 47th floor, the North Tower, describes his evacuation. Quote, when I arrived at the sky lobby level, there were massive people waiting to the elevators, and for some reason I decided to go back into the stairwell. Heat was quite intense, and there were some people who had taken off their shirts and the intensity of the warning signs, like the sound of the alarms, it was really pounding you. On the floors, we had vending machines, and we had been... They had been sliced and open, and security personnel were giving out the water. Anyway, when we went down, people were very calm. There were three rows of people, the regular people like me going down, the people who were coming down from the other floors and who were really badly burned. No skin, no hair, just burned. And so they were coming down and they were walking or Staring down by people, held by people, screaming was coming down from the stairwell, emergency, emergency, and people were coming down. And then the third floor, and the third, the third flow of people was, of course, the security personnel and the fire department people. Now, those people were exhausted in some of these eyes. We could see that they knew something. It was dangerous, and they knew something. While there was no panic whatsoever in the stairwell, these people were constantly... were concentrated, focused on doing their job, and while I was walking down, they were going up to their death, and I was walking down to live, end quote. And then there's another quote saying from the baseline employee, Florence Jones remembers his ev- her evacuation from the South Tower. Quote, I literally thought for a moment because I tried to open the door and all you could feel was the heat of the fire. I was like, oh gosh, am I going to have to jump because I wasn't going to wait for the firemen. Was I going to have to do what I just saw people doing? And I remember him running back across the floor and grabbing his jacket saying, let's go, let's go. And at that point, well, no, when we got over to the B stairwell to exit off the floor, another gentleman from Aeon had stopped on our floor to get water. And so he ended up coming with us, and when we walked down, no, when we walked down to the stairwell, we met up with the 13 other people from my company that were in that stairwell. And we all joined hands to walk down because the smoke in the stairwell was like thick fog. You really could not see more than a hand's length in front of you. We had a walk down about five levels before the stairwell cleared when you can see when you could see and it actually stopped we had to feel around to find out where the door handle was unquote then they have some images of the shoes that were worn the day of the of the crash was and it's like a man's shoe then they have women's shoes like High heels. For for women. And then they also have like. Another shoe from women. That donated their shoes. Of the day of the World Trade Center. Like the attack. 
then we have at nine o'clock on board one on board flight one seventy five. Earlier at eight fifty two, flight attendant likely Robert John Fagman had reached United Airlines operator in San Francisco, California, reporting a hijacking underway by nine in the morning. Passengers Garrett Aka Bailey, Peter Burton Hansen, and Brian David Sweeney have called family members. Jules, this is Brian. Listen, I'm on an airplane that's been hijacked. That's a quote from from Brian Sweeney. Flight 175 passenger Brian David Sweeney leaves. A voicemail message to his wife, Julie, after the plane is hijacked. The answering machine. Message 1. Brian Sweeney. Jules, this is Brian. Listen, I'm on an airplane that's been hijacked. Things don't go well. It's not. It's not looking good. I just want you to know I absolutely love you, and I want you to do good. Go have good times. Same to my parents and everybody. I just totally love you. And I. I'll see you when you get there. Bye, babe. I hope I call you. End quote. Wow, that is really sad. That just hurt my heartstrings, and normally I'm not that pulled when it comes down to sad things. I know, you're not. That makes me sad. It makes me want to cry. But I can't. I have to have. I have to maintain a full composure. Then they have the calls from Flight 70, 175 at 8:50 in the morning. Flight 75 passenger Brian. David Sweeney leaves a voice message to his wife Julie, and he calls his mother Louise to report the hijacking, telling her that the passengers were considering storming the cockpit to wrest control from the hijackers. Sweeney is seated in the front row coach, remaining um, during the takeoff, but he later makes his call from the air one located, the air phone located, whatever the last is. of the plane. 9.02 in the morning. Evacuation orders broadcast from the South Tower. May I have your attention please? Repeating this message. The situation including building one if conditions were meet. Therefore you may wish to start an orderly evacuation. Announcement is made by Port Authority Safety Employee via the South Tower's public address system. And then at 9.03 in the morning the South Tower is attacked. Five hijackers crashed the United Airlines Flight 175 into floors 77 through 85. So like I was saying that the five hijackers crashed United Airlines Flight 175 into floors 77 through 85 of the World Trade Center South Tower, killing 51 passengers and nine crew members aboard the aircraft and an unknown number of people inside the building. Impact impact renders two of the three emergency stairwells impassable, impassable and severs the majority of the elevator cables in the area, trapping many above the impact zone 
and inside elevator cars. Shortly after a hijacked flight, 175 strikes the South Tower. Some workers in the building jump or fall to their deaths, a phenomenon already witnessed after the attack of the North Tower. Estimates of number of people who die as a result of falling from the Twin Towers range from 50 to more than 200. So then again, there's video. Yeah, a Lower Manhattan resident, Richard and Colleen Heffler, witnessed the crash of the hijacked of Flight 175 from the 10th floor window of their Battery Park City apartment a block west of the World Trade Center. Training his video camera to the tower, Richard Heffler records close-up views of the building facade of debris spinning from the puncture hole and heavy smoke emitting from it that grows increasingly more opaque. Audible is Colleen Heffler on the phone describing the unimaginable sights that she was witnessing in the background. Television broadcast news reports as well. And then we have another video as well.
This video again was from the same Tribeca resident, Carolyn Kama Copra. And she films while this is all unfolding. And towards the end of the video, the second plane hits the South Tower. And a big fire and smoke bursts into the air and everyone's yelling oh my god oh my god oh my god and one and i think she was kind of like tearing up and she's like oh my god so yes and then there's images of the smoke coming from the north towers and then there was uh the flight 175 impact and then we then we have the end Aeon Corporation employee Constance Labetti describes the feeling of the impact of the hijacked flight 175 crash into the South Tower from within the building. Quote, I think I got this. I got to the 72nd floor, 75th floor, when we felt and heard a loud noise, and people in the stairs started to fall down the stairs. And what it felt like was, this is what I thought. Tower one had collapsed into our building and it felt like somebody took the building shook it and put it back down in its place i was holding on to the banisters really tight so i didn't fall but a lot of people on the staircase were tumbling down what evidently happened was our building had been hit end quote then we have another quote from the WCBS Radio 180 traffic reporter Tom Kaminsky describing the attacks from the chopper 180 and the news anchor Pat Carroll and Jeff Chaplin discover a second plane that hit the World Trade Center. Tom Kaminsky said, quote, at least three sides of the tower one and that is only building Pat Carroll said, quote, it's exploding right now. Tommy we're seeing another plane, end quote. Jeff Chaplin says, quote, Apparently, there was another plane we have witnessed, and we also just spoke to a moment ago. We're hearing from Carl Tendler, who is at the village department apartments in Washington Square. We're trying to bring him on the air, end quote. So then we have, an, again, increasing responses to that building. We have the FDNY reporting there. We have EMS people. In addition to requesting the shutdown of the airspace over New York City, the New York City Police Department and the NYPD calls for second um, level floor mobilization, bringing in a total of deployments of nearly 2,000 officers. The New York City Fire Department, FDNY, issues a fifth alarm to the South Tower deploying several hundred additional firefighters to the disaster, additional companies and off-duty personnel from across the metropolitan area travel to the scene. And then out of five, informing the president. While visiting an elementary school in Sarasota, Florida, U.S. President George W. Bush learns from the White House Chief Staff, Andrew Card, that a second plane had crashed into the World Trade Center. Okay, let me stop there for a second. 
if I was president and if I thought when I hear the first hit, okay, maybe I thought it was an accident. Okay, maybe it was an accident and the person didn't know that they were going to hit the building unless they saw it, you know. And, um, but if I was told a second plane hit, oh boy, that means we, U.S., America, United States, is under attack. So, 25 minutes later, before leaving the elementary school, President Bush delivers remarks calling the attacks quote-unquote national tragedy and nothing that he spoke with several officials including u.s vice president dick cheney new york governor george pataki and fbi director robert s muller the third quote terrorism against our nation will not be will not stand end quote President Bush tells Americans in the minute-long statement, The president and members of his staff leave the elementary school at 9.35 a.m. and drive to Sarasota, Bridgeton International Airport to board Air Force One. The plane departs at 9.54 in the morning without a clear destination. Although President Bush prefers to return to Washington, D.C., his staff recommends Barsdale Air Force Base in Louisiana as an appropriate and secure location for landing. Yes, if you see the documentary of the from National Geographic where George W. Bush was interviewed in 2011, he said that he he got the message that we've been under attack. He needed to be calm about it and not be so flustered, mad, upset. He needed to keep his his cool, need to keep his emotions in check. So, but then after everything that happened, he was like, holy moly, we are under attack. And he addressed everyone saying America is under attack. The Twin Towers just like they were hit by two planes and it is a national tragedy. And we are going to find out who had did this, and and that is it, ladies and gentlemen. And God bless America. And then he went off to the airport in Florida, and then he, what was the word I'm looking for? When he was in in the airplane with his um his guards, um his staff. And everyone else, his secret service agents, everyone, what happened was that he, what's, what am I looking for? There's a word. He insisted he wanted to go back to Washington, D.C., to the White House, but his TSA agents told him no and advised him to be at a secure military base for safety. Because they didn't know what's going to happen next. They didn't know, God forbid, it was going to hit the Pentagon or or a military base or like anything or the White House. But we soon find out that later that that happened. 
At 9.05 in the morning, the New York mayor arrives at the NYPD command post. Mayor Rudolph Giuliani rushes to the NYPD command post near the World Trade Center. And then 9.12, flight attendants Renee A. May calls her mother Nancy May and tells her the hijackers have seized control of the plane, forcing passengers and crew members to the rear. When they were disconnected, Nancy May calls American Airlines. Minutes later, Flight 77 passengers Barbara K. Olson calls her husband, U.S. Selector General Theodore Olson, was at his desk at the Department of Justice. She tells him that hijackers have taken over the flight using knives and box cutters. Theodore Olson alerts other federal officials. 9.30, the Mayor's Office of Emergency Management, OEM, evacuated. Report of U.S. Secretary of Service agent of the possibility of additional hijacker planes from prompts OME to evacuate its headquarters at the 7th World Trade Center. 9.36 a.m. Evacuation of the U.S. Vice President. Secretary, the U.S. Um, Secret Service agents evacuate Vice President Dick Cheney to the President Emergency Operations Center beneath the White House. And there's an image of that happening. Then at 9, a minute after that, 9.37 in the morning, an airplane crashes in to the Pentagon. Five hijackers crash American Airlines Flight 77 into the Pentagon. 53 passengers and six crew members on board perish. The crash and ensuing the fire kill 125 military and civilian personnel on the ground. And then there is a picture of it happening. It's like very digitalized because it's from a camera. And it's like a fiery explosion, and it's like at a corner. And then we see it like minutes within from the hijack of Flight 77. Struck the Pentagon emergency response agencies from the National Capital Rain form a unified command. Arlington County Firefighter Department assumed company of the scene and directed fire compression and fire operations. The, the unit trained and equipped to fight jet fuel fires came from nearby Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport. Many civilian employees and military personnel evacuate in the building shortly after the impact, while others came to the aid of those evacuating and building, evacuating the building and people trapped by flames and debris. But with the image of the crash of the flight 77 p the pentagon security camera captures the crash on the hijacked se flight 77 into the building's west facade at the time of the impact hijacked plane flew 530 miles an hour security cameras at a nearby gas station in double tree hotel also record the crash then there's some quotes Louise Rogers, a civilian accountant working for the U.S. Army and the Pentagon, recounts the explosion at the Pentagon. Quote, 
I just took our paperwork and started the fax machine, put the papers in the fax, dialed the number, and at the exact same moment when I hit the start key, the plane hit the building. You can look at it now. You can see humor in just about anything. At first, I thought it w- I'd blown up the fax machine. It's like the initial state of shock. And I thought, oh my god, what did I do? And then I realized it wasn't me. I smelled the jet fuel and and being around the Air Force for 30 minutes and 30 some years, something years, in one way or another, I recognized jet fuel when I smelled it. And we had heard on the radio prior to that about the Twin Towers. Someone in the office had a radio and called our attention to it, and we listened. They were talking about the first one, and then about that moment, the impact of the second one. But the New York but New York seemed so far away and never gave it a thought, end quote. Then there was another quote here by John Yates, a U.S. Army civilian security manager at the Pentagon, at the Pentagon, describes the emergency uh, at the Pentagon, quote, One of my coworkers asked me if I knew what was going on in New York, so I said no, and she said, well, you gotta come see, and there was a crowd of people watching the TV. So I stood there for... A few minutes and watched and then I walked back to my desk called my wife and she knew she said she knew and I said well I just wanted to let you know I was okay and she said do me a favor for the rest of the day work from underneath your desk so I laughed and I said yeah honey I will I love you and I'll see you tonight and I walked back over by this time and the crowd thinned out a little bit and just as I decided to get up and leave, the plane hit outside the building. End quote. And then we have at 9.42 in the morning, Federal Aviation Administration, FSA, grounds all flights. And that order was from the U.S. President, George W. Bush. He ordered that to happen. To ground all flights because he doesn't know whether they have more planes that are being hijacked other than these three airplanes for now so that's the only reason why he ordered that to happen then at 9:45, washington dc evacuates evacuation begins at the white house in the u.s capitol where the house of representatives and senate are in session throughout the morning officials across the count- country are in the process of closing buildings, bridges, and other public places. And then at 9.58 in the morning, 911 call from Flight 93. 37 um, telephone calls are known to have been made from the hijacked Flight 93, most most placed from the rear of the plane. One of the last calls was made by passenger Edward P. Felt who uses his phone to dial 911 after closing himself in the restroom to avoid distraction. By 9.58 a.m., Flight 93 is flying so low that he succeeds in reaching the emergency operator in nearby Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. So we have an an image of the the 93 passenger, Mark Bellingham, and his mother, Alice Hollingwen. Mark Bellingham is one of the 13 of the Flight 93 passenger and crew member who 
succeeded in placing a phone call in her 30s or loved ones. Bellingham called his mother Alice Hollywood, a former flight attendant via airphone, and alerts her to the hijacking. When the connection drops, Hollywood immediately dialed 911 and is transferred to FBI, where she reports the hijacking. Afterwards, Hollywood tries to reach Bellingham again, leaving several messages on his cell phone. She explains that the hijackers are on the suicide mission and encourages him and the other passengers to try and to control the take control of the plane and then there are some quotes from the mother the mother says quote mark this is your mom it's 10 54 in the morning actually 9 54 a.m the news is that has been hijacked by the terrorist and they are planning to probably use the plane as a target to hit some site on the ground so if you possibly can try to overpower these guys if you can because you because they'll probably use the plane as a target, so I would say go ahead and do everything you can to overpower them because they're all hell-bent. Try to call me back if you can. You know the number here. Okay, I love you, sweetie. Bye. End quote. And then, again, from his mom, Alice Hollingland, said, quote, Mark, apparently it's terrorists and they're hell-bent on crashing the aircraft, so if you can, try to overtake the aircraft. There there doesn't seem to be much plan to land the aircraft normally, so I guess your best bet would be to try to take it over if you can. Or tell the other passengers. There's one flight that they say is headed towards San Francisco. It might be yours if you can. Group some people and perhaps do the best you can to, t- to get control of it. I love you, sweetie best and our best luck but she said good luck bye bye and then we have another one not another plane but it's more of a collapse of the south tower the second tower after burning for 56 minutes the south tower collapses in 10 seconds more than 800 civilians and first responders inside the building and in the surrounding area are killed as a result of the attack of the South Tower. So then we have some security videos of it, of the South Tower collapse. And we have falling debris and a dust cloud, which look like a desert cloud. Danae DeFontes joined Bidola and Reef North Tower 84. Quote, I have never been in in an earthquake, but I can imagine that's what it's like. Another quote is Janet McKinley, Lower Manhattan resident. Quote, the cloud of debris and dust came from our apartment. I can hear these sounds, a sort of crackling, loud crackling, and it collapsed. In the video, you'll see that it's Liberty. In the video, it's it's showing Liberty Street at the time. Okay, now I the building collapsed and now there's dust and debris everywhere everyone is scattering 
everywhere, so that is what the video is showing. And then we are in the south of Clapton Hall. In the second video, it shows that two men and a woman are screaming, oh my god, oh my god, like it's falling down, because when something's like burning like that, like black smoke, there is a tiny speck of like shadows, and that when that falls, it falls. And when it was falling in the image, it showed, well on the image in the video, it showed that the south tower was collapsing and it was like on a tilt on a tilt and it was slowly falling down within those 10 seconds and i was like whoa that is scary and we have another one next saying oh actually we have 9:59 in the morning continual of the government procedures, the continuity of the government procedures to establish and protect high-level government officials during national emergencies are implemented for the first known time in American history. Quote, we have a plan, we have trained people, we have exercised it regularly, and if, that if Washington isn't around, the U.S. government continues. End quote. And that is from Richard A. Clark, National Security Council Counterterrorism Coordinator Taft comments aired on September 11, 2001. And at 10.03 in the morning, the crash of Flight 93. Four hijackers crashed Flight 93 in a field near the town of Shakesville in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, after passengers and crew stormed the cockpit, and 32 passengers and seven crew members were on board Parish. The crash site is approximately 20 minutes flying time from Washington, D.C. And they show images of where it was and where they landed and where they perished. The hijackers rolled flight, rolled flight 93 side to side, rapidly driving and climbing in an attempt to knock passengers and crew off balance as they attempt to storm the cockpit. At 10.03, the hijackers flight 93 in a field crash it in the field in Somerset County in Pennsylvania near the, t- near the town of Shanksville. The plane borrowed, borrowed into the soft earth of a reclaimed coral mine, and the airplane fragments were scattered over the debris field that stretched for miles. 33 passengers and seven crew members on board perished. Eyewitnesses on the ground called 911 to report the crash. There is a fragment, there is a fuelage fragment from Flight 93 that was found. And then we have the, we have at 10.15 in the morning, the damage of the Pentagon E wing. The damage 
selects from the Pentagon's we- um, west-facing outer ring collapses around this time. Then they have half of the well, quarter way of the building of the Pentagon, and like a like in a smoke color in black, and then fire images of firefighters fighting the. F- the fire, and then they have images of the Pentagon as it was smoking. And then we have the collapse of the North Tower. The North Tower collapses after burning for 102 minutes. More than 1,600 people are killed as a result of the attack of the North Tower. And then we have people from afar of the North Tower seeing this, the smoke from the World Trade Center site is visible, t- is visible to pedestrians on the street. And this is from far away. This is really far. And then smoke pours from the roof of the North Tower at 1 and 10 at 1 8 a.m. NYPD helicopter pilots circle. Circle the North Tower warns of its impending collapse. And here's a video of it. Yeah, in the video, it's covered up by white smoke as it's collapsing, and it collapses very rapidly to the ground. And this is another one. And that one was like very mature language, both of them had mature language in it, but that one, the second one showed a pretty clear image of, well video image, video footage of the North Tower collapsing rapidly. Everyone is yelling and screaming and crying at the same time, which I understand why would they cry. Like, I understand why they cried, and I would have cried too, honestly, if I was there. 
because I'm, again, I'm an emotional person. Chloe, not so much. And Officer David Brink from the NYPD ESU says, quote, But this time it seemed like the collapse lasted forever. And then they have 1102, the mayor orders evacuation of Lower Manhattan near the World Trade Center. The South Tower collapses. Mayor Rudolph Giuliani and senior members of, the, of his administration find his temp find temporary shelter inside an office building close by. At the dusk begins to settle, they walk north, intent on establishing a new base of operations for the city government. Reporters catch up with the mayor and who urges the public at 11.02 a.m. to evacuate Lower Manhattan. He will continue to address the public in briefing at the temporary headquarters at the New York City Police Academy throughout the day. Quote, I would like to take this opportunity to tell everyone to remain calm and to be and to the extent that they can to evacuate Lower Manhattan, end quote, from the New York City Mayor of Rudolph, um, New York City Mayor at the time of Rudolph Giuliani. And people, there's images here that show them on the Williamsburg Bridge, walking on it, evacuating on foot. And there is an image on a boat, on someone on a boat, when I'm taking a picture of the smog and the the white puff of smoke coming. And there's people even running, too. There's people on safety rafts and boats. And it's a, it's a water evacuation. And then they have at 12... 16 a.m. the U.S. Air Force is closed. The last flight still in the air above the continental United States lands and two and a half hours the U.S. Air Force had been cleared of the estimate of 4,500 commercial and general aviation planes. Plane passengers become stranded on a flight are canceled. Others attempting to travel nationally by train, bus, or rental car find most options canceled or sold out within hours of the attacks. Air Force One carrying U.S. President George W. Bush and members of his staff travel throughout the day in search for security locations landing in Burksdale Air Force Base in Louisiana at 11.45 a.m. and later landing at the, out, the off Air Force Base in Nebraska at 2.50 p.m. President Bush returns to the Washington, D.C. area that evening, landing at Andrews Air Force Base and taking a helicopter to the White House. And then we have at 11.30 p.m., a group of 14 survivors located in the ruins of the North Tower Stairwell B. Um, the lower section of the North Tower Stairwell B survives the building's collapse, protecting the group of 13 first responders and one civilian who had been attempting to evacuate down the stairs within hours of the tower's collapse. First responders emerged from the debris and direct res rescuers to the victim. Early afternoon, rescue efforts continue at the World Trade Center 
Within hours of the attack, some rescue workers and journalists began referring to the scene of the mass destruction of the World Trade Center sites as Ground Zero, a term typically used to describe devastation caused by an atomic bomb. First responders search and rescue teams and volunteers continue to converge on the Ground Zero throughout the day. Rescuers use special tools to peer into the voids and search for the arraignment on the stairwells and elevators that might shelter survivors in the last successful rescue will occur midday on september 12th 3 p.m fdny rescue survivor at the world trade center site rescuers free port authority employee pastel busley from the rubble of the north tower busley was in the process of evacuating north tower when the building began to collapse from above and situated somewhere between the 22nd and 13th floor. Buzzley crouches into a fetal position and hours later wakes up in the slab of the building debris 15 feet above the ground. 520 collapse of the 7th World Trade Center. After burning for several hours, the 7th World Trade Center collapses the 47-story tower had been evacuated earlier, and there were no casualties. All you can see was this huge wall of dust and debris. From a quote from Cammie McCormick from WCBS News Radio. And then 8.30 p.m., U.S. President addresses the nation from the White House. Quote, the search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I have directed the full resource of our intelligence to law enforcement and communities to find these res- find those responsible and bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. End quote. From U.S. President George W. Bush. 10.30 p.m. Rescue workers locate trapped PAPD officer. Around this time, rescuers locate PAPD officer William Jamino and PAPD Sergeant John McGullen injured but alive in the debris of the World Trade Center. They free officer Jamino after three hours of dangerous tunneling work. Sergeant McGullen's rescue will take another eight hours. Workers will extricate the 18th survivor Janelle Guzman, on the afternoon of September 12th, she will be the last person to be rescued. Detective Anthony Conti of the NYPD ESU said, quote, Knowing the fact that someone was down there alive, that you just want to grab him and just hold him and pull him out. And there's a video of Ground Zero.
the video it shows that the woman is recording everything from last night at the time at 10:30 p.m. of after the aftermath of the two plane crashes hit the north and south tower and when they collapsed and everything was cleared even a little bit of smoke was still visible but not black smoke white smoke and debris was still in the air and it was pitch black dark outside well firefighters were still there for search and rescue and paramedics were still on the side waiting to find more survivors from the collapse rescue operations continued throughout the night numerous construction professionals first responders and volunteers converged at ground zero to search for survivors improving improvising buckets and brigades to remove debris destruction of the world trade center had rendered the surrounding area of Lower Manhattan difficult to recognize. Broadway Broadway was unrecognizable from the debris because it was covered from dust and dirt and from the buildings and it was covering up the, the street sign of the name Broadway. And the lady in the video said, Broadway, there it is. An unidentified person notes off camera. And that is the attack of September 11th. But we're going to go to the recovery timeline from September 12th, 2021. Oh, did I say ground zero recovery timeline September 12th, 2021? I... That was a mistake. I meant September 12, 2001, because that would seem grammatically wrong if I would have said September 12, 2021. But, um, yeah, um, September 12, 2001, searchers. Searching for survivors the day after the horrific event of September 11th, thousands of construction workers, first responders, and self-dispatch volunteers coverage at ground zero to search for survivors, improvising bucket brigades to rescue, to recover debris from mountainous pile formed by the collapse of the World Trade Center. At 12.30 p.m., the rescuers free Janelle um, Guzman from the wreckage. An employee from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey who evacuated from the 64th floor of the North Tower Good. Guzman is the last of the 18 people trapped in the rubble to be found alive. Which is a lot because in the images, if you see it online on the 9-11 Memorial website, it will show you like thousands of rescuers with white construction helmets. And they're all fighting and searching for survivors from the construction, well, not the destruction of 9-11 like uh, like the aftermath 
Then another one, another image of um, FDNY searchers, search and rescue um, after the 9-11. Shows them like looking under rubble and searching for survivors under wreckage. And then there is almost the popular image. It's like where the windows are kind of like bent and they're like split, making like a V shape with another, other ones. Yeah, there's that one and it's bad. And it was still some debris because if something like that happens, like it will still linger in the air. It doesn't matter if it's already done or something like that, it will still linger in the air because it's a lot of levels of flooring. Because again, it was a lot. It was okay. Again, the North Tower was a thousand three hundred and sixty-eight feet, and that is a lot. I'm not saying it was bigger than the Empire State, but it was almost exactly the same height. And the, the South Tower, I was going to say North Tower, but the South Tower was 1,362 feet, which is much less, like four feet less than the North Tower, which kind of, that's why they gave it the name Twin Towers, because they almost look identical, and they were. They were identical and similar, but not because of the feet, but because of how the structure it was built. So, um, in that image, it shows partly of that, but some of it is more like, like, kind of like glass, um, metal from the building, um, office broken office stuff you just see like a first responder with helmet and like kind of like the orange and yellow vest on paramedic and they're just trying to find people and and they're walking around trying to find people on September 13th there is a quote here on this one saying quote John Nipolatoni sir father of victim John Philip Nipolatoni lieutenant of the FBNY rescue company to recall searching for his son at the ground zero quote walking through that winter garden area you could smell the damp um, the damp the damp press of the from the ash that was wet and everything was and it was darker and dingier the more we proceeded around and it was foreboding but I can't describe it every step I took forward I had an impulse to take a step back because I didn't want to see 
what I knew I was going to see. I just, I was just, not I was just, but it was just that bad. And the faces on all the firefighters around us, those that were already there, maybe coming back, guys going in. And we finally came around, but before that, I remember walking through the winter garden area. I looked up at all those shreds of glass. Correction, shards of glass. Hanging like icicles. And I said to myself, somebody is going to get killed. That... one of those things is going to come down and it's going to kill somebody and it was and I was afraid afraid and I'm saying to myself what was my son thinking about going in there is that what he felt and did he take every step forward when every nerve in his body is telling you don't go you don't want to go here run turn around question mark end quote of course every firefighter paramedic and police officer is scared to go into a burning building like that but like once you are once you want like to become a paramedic a police officer detective or something like that or lieutenant or battalion chief or a firefighter you are risking your life every day to do what it needs to be done to rescue these people out of these buildings and make sure everyone is safe and to figure out who done it as well or what was the cause and every single one of those paramedics those police officers those firefighters and battalion chiefs and lieutenants have rescued a lot of people at the time because if you saw there is a documentary if you have Disney Disney Plus or just Disney like the Disney Channel app like when you watch different shows like for like a price and stuff and along with it has National Geographic. There's like two about... Well, there's more than two. But like for now, I've watched these two. Um, one was about the interview of with George W. Bush from 2011. After 10 years of 9-11 happening. And this was when President Obama was in office. And, yeah, um, he was captured. Well, not yet. I'll tell you guys more about that one. That one is more different because when in his interview, he said he had to maintain calm and kind of reclusive because as president, you should not show emotion to anything sort of like this and kind of give feedback to these people that, Hey, that they won and that were undefeated America. That like undefeated America has been defeated. Like he couldn't show that, and that's true because like if you're 
like a present to like 50 states like 10 plus more states and something like this happens you cannot show validation to these people that like hey they were the cause you know so I kind of understand what he was coming from like you can't show thanks to these people that hey they won you can't do that I couldn't do that as president and then we have again September 12th 2001 sorry 2001 I was going to say 2021 2001 Agency Act the members of the New York Fire Department FDNY search for survivors while fighting the fires that burned beneath the rubble of the collapsed World Trade Center. The New York City Department of Design and Construction, DDC, provides engineering and construction support to the FDNY in this early period and later oversees the entire recovery operation at the site. New York City Police Department and the Port Authority Department also search for survivors and work to secure the site. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, Urban Research and Rescue Teams support the work of local first responders. Fire companies from around the Tri-State area try to assist local firehouses. Other volunteers, including iron workers and members of the demolition and construction trade, also arrive at the site to support the rescue efforts. The, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, continues to criminally investigate and in seeking out airplane parts. Black boxes can co- um, compromise a, a cockpit voice recorder and a flight data recorder and other evidence. Over the months following, many other agencies and companies respond and contribute to the rescue and recovery efforts of the World Trade Center's site, including AMCE, American Red Cross, Bolivia Center Lend Lease, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, Consolidation Edison, Federal Aviation Administration, Leslie E. Robertson, Associate and Associates, Metropolitan Transit Authority, National Guard, NYC Department of Buildings, NYC Department of Corrections, NYC Department of Environmental Protection, NYC Department of Health, NYC Department of Sanitation, NYC Department of Transportation, NYC Office of Chief Medical Examiner, NYC Office of Emergency Management, NYC, well, NYS Department of Transportation, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, National Transportation Safety Board, Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, Salvation Army, Thornton um, Tomazamedi slash LZA, Tully Construction, Turner Construction, U.S. Army, U.S. Army Corps, of engineers, U.S. Coast Guard, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, U.S. Marine Corps, and U.S. Navy and Verizon.
and then we have more images of confronting devastation this kind of like kind of white smoke coming out of the devastation of both towers and it's kind of shown like a light towards it so and there's like this big piece from the building that looks like the windows like the windows but with no glass on it and then the rubble in front of it like the rubble of like metal shards office stuff broken office stuff on the ground in front of it and surrounding it and then we have another image of a dog canine search and and rescue team saying that the photo of this dog this rescue dog wears booties to protect his paws from the sharp and uneven debris and the heat generated by the fires and other hazardous con- conditions at the site so also not like also apart from these people searching there was a canine search and rescue team as well And then we have another image of a design design of the construction hat, the white construction hat, like I said, that these people were wearing at the time to the search and rescue team. It was basically a hard hat by Ground Zero, and it was donated by Edgar Seeker. No, Cedar. Cedar. A project manager from this D... DC during the recovery. And the rim of the hat was signed by the time mayor Rudolph Giuliani. Well, this timeline, this one, the the twelfth, two thousand one, September twelfth, film and TV industry workers assist at the site. So many individuals unaffiliated with the first respondent agency volunteered to assist in the search and rescue effort. Among those volunteers was the lighting technicians and other members of NYC television and film industries who bring lighting equipment from rental houses to the World Trade Center site. And the equipment provides strong portable lighting in the smoky ground zero and bronze. The cinematographer Charles Libin brings the Ruby 7, a lighting he designed to Ground Zero on September 12th. The bright light helps the first responders continue search for victims overnight. Libin stays to assist with the recovery effort for seven, well, several days. And now the artifact is now capped at the 9-11 Memorial Museum. And then there's another one showing what that um, Ruby 7 did to help these people find and search and rescue. Because it was like a sort of lighting for them. So they had to use it. By the time, so it was like a, it was a powerful multi-handed mobile light designed for film industry brought to the World Trade Center by cinematographer Charles Libin. So, 
and then there's another image not from that and it's like on this like that image was shown to be on the site of 9-11 and kind of shown what it was doing at the time and then we have an fbi um like on this their site like it basically it says the fbi investigators seek to recover their cockpit voice recorders and flight data recorders from the hijacked planes that crashed into the World Trade Center. American Airlines Flight 11 and United Airlines Flight 175, while commonly referred to as black boxes, those two devices were usually brightly colored so that they would be easily visible in debris. This poster serves as a visual aid for rescue and recovery workers who may spot this equipment. The black boxes from the World Trade Center that hit, uh, well, the black boxes from the plane that hit the World Trade Center are not found. But the artifact is on display in 9-11 Memorial Museum. Then we have, again, September 12th, clearing the perimeter. So, New York Department of Transportation and New York City Department of Sanitation, DSNY, work to clear the streets around the perimeter of the World Trade Center site and personnel remove crash cars, debris, and other large obstacles to allow p- passage of emergency crews and construction equipment heading to the site. Companies search, no, companies such as Con Edison and Verizon endeavor to restore power and communication services in Lower Manhattan. So again, you'll see like on the side of the streets, like more like kind of like down the streets that there's more because like it, as it fell down, it not just fell down kind of like flat, it went everywhere it spread it out like when the first one came down the south tower came down so like a few minutes after that one the first one the first building also went down and in both rubble and debris together kind of fused this whole like dust dust sort of looking thing and they kind of like a desert dust and debris type thing and it spread it everywhere down down Manhattan and everyone that was there watching this happen they all ran for it and to open businesses and close the doors of those businesses and saying my god there was at one point in one of the buildings I don't know which one where these men rescued and helped a pregnant woman because she said she was only there because her husband was there at the time working until she came to see him. She was pregnant with their daughter. She was kind of nine months pregnant and so when she was nine months pregnant, these guys saw her. She was still there and um she was kind of left and she kind of didn't see her husband so when they heard help 
kind of helped. So they stopped what they were doing from the stairwell and they heard it in one of the floors and they saw her and they rescued her. And they didn't really have like a, a disabled wheelchair for her. So they just kind of lifted her. They lifted her down those stairs. And they weren't really high up. They were like on the 60th or like the 60th number. Like 64 or something like that. So they really weren't that high. So. And luckily, thank God those people got out. Because they were like, they got out and they were speaking in a documentary. And the mom was speaking out too. And so was the daughter. She goes like, thank God these guys rescued my mom. Because if not... I wouldn't have been alive, and I wouldn't have survived. I would have died. And it's true, because if you're pregnant, smoke inhalation can get to the baby as well. So, those guys are good too. But anyways, I was saying that debris landed everywhere, and so did the... It's like, um... The parts from the building landed everywhere too. Not just towards the ground. It went onto cars and onto kind of like outside building structures outside a little bit and onto trees. So and there's another image of like a truck a big truck of Con Edison and the debris of like the um like there was like a big truck of condensation right on the image and in the image it says with a caption saying that condensation works to restore power to the area well in the background there is the side of the what are the world trade centers like on its side with like the windows kind of like twisted and it's on a side, and then there's rubble on the side of it. Then there's another image of deep, uh, yes, and why? Like, Department of Sanitation is, like, there, like, with trucks, and, like, they're filling it with rubble, of 9-11 and everything like that into these trucks like they're clearing the debris from the World Trade Center which is a lot of debris because again it was a lot of floors like it was 110 floors and that is a lot and I believe that one the other one was like 106 or 5 floors and that was a lot too And then we have, again, September 12, 2011, Fresh Kills Landfill Reopens. And the Fresh Kills facility on Staten Island, a former landfill slated, became the landmark reopened shortly before daybreak to provide an area for the investigators to analyze and further search the wreckage of the World Trade Center. The fresh kill's name remains fresh water, which means fresh water. 
reflects its location near water, as well as New York City Dutch col- col- colonial past. Land fills vast open space, native isolation, proximity to lower Manhattan, and access to bu- via bridges and water transportation make it viable location in which to conduct massive evidence and remain recovery operations. And over the next 10 months, over 1 million tons of the World Trade Center material will be transported by truck and barge to the Fresh Kills landfill for sorting. So September 12, 2001, um, fire, fighting fires at the Pentagon. Fires continue to burn along the Pentagon's roof as the Arrington Fire Department and firefighters from the other regional firehouses battled the blaze. Many U.S. Department of Defense employees returned to work in unaffected half of the building. U.S. President George W. Bush visits the Pentagon to thank first responders and others who have arrived to assist. By early evening, the fire is controlled but not completely extinguished. Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, teams members of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and Firefighters have begun to fortify the building structure in the day of the attack, allowing the Joint Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, and FEMA and military teams to recover remains and evidence and property. And they show images of the Pentagon as it was like kind of the fire diminished and the FBI investigation and photos of President Bush visiting the Pentagon and people the construction workers putting the American flag outside of the building. And also there's another image at the Pentagon where the half of the other side, well, the corner side of where it was hit, the debris is falling down. And then we have, again, September 12, 2001, recovery and marine and Relief operations continue at the Flight 93 crash site. FBI and the National Transportation of Safety and NTSB and the Pennsylvania State Police and the Somerset County Coroner's Office and others searched the crash site of the hijacked United Airlines Flight 93 in Somerset County, Pennsylvania for the victims and crime evidence. The agencies also secure the perimeter and federal the Federal Disaster and the Monetary Operation Response Team will arrive the next day to begin the process of identifying remains. The National Transportation Safety Board and the American Red Cross established a Family Assistance Center in Seven Springs, in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania, approximately 30 miles from the crash site. And then they have September 13, 2001, Discovering the Ground Zero Cross. Volunteer local 731 construction worker Frank um, Selecha finds a steel crossed beam in the rubble of 6 World Trade Center. The steel, which comes from to be known as the Ground Zero Cross becomes local to the inner faith for religious services and a solace to some workers. It will be moved 
to different locations as recovery work continues at the World Trade Center site. In the days and months to come, others will find different ways to make meaning and come to terms with the tragedy of 9-11, often by making or leaving objects of tribute. There were flowers put into, um, in between cars where the debris hit inside cars because once the building falls on top of, top of cars, the glass of the windshields and the mirrors and the windows start to break and it hits inside the car. So, it, people stuck flowers inside the car. To put um, contribute there. There was um, a life-size bronze statue of the seated businessman with open briefcase emerges as a symbol of survival following the attacks. Installed at the Liberty Plaza. That was adjacent to the World Trade Center in nineteen eighty in nineteen eighty two. It was be bedecked with flowers and flags and tribute items f- after nine eleven. And then they have the picture of the cross that they found at the at Ground Zero. And then they have a Symbol Steel, which is the New York City Police Department Emergency Service Unit Officers David Brink borrows equipment from the iron workers to cut symbols out of steel. This silhouette of the Twin Towers is one of the pieces Brink creates during the month he spends at the World Trade Center site. And that artifact is displayed at the 9-11 Memorial Museum. And literally those cutouts look exactly like the the tower, like the Twin Towers. And I believe um, there is another quote here that the local iron worker and recovery worker, William Cleland describes making symbol steel at ground zero. When I had done for the families, me and my crew, we, what we did, we had a little slack time and we cut some across and little ones at the, for the kids and some nice ones for their mother. And when they came down, they would give those crosses to the families and they loved it. They really appreciated it, and it made us feel good. Then we have September 14th, where George W. Bush visits Ground Zero. There's a quote here as well from the retired firefighter Robert Beckwith recounts meeting President Bush at Ground Zero. Quote, We kept working, and all of a sudden we hear the president is coming, so I see a couple of guys put their shovels down, and they go out to the street. 
So I put mine down. I went down to the street and I saw the the pumper that we found it was 76 engine. They found this out later. Nobody was standing on it. So I jumped on top of it and on top of it because right across the street was the command post and it was a tent with a microphone all set up in front of it. And I said, okay, that's nice. Spot for the president to talk. I knew he was on the West Street going down because we could hear the guys. Oh, nice going, George. While I was there, this guy comes over and he dusts off next to my right foot there. And he says, this safe? I said, yeah, I figured it was a secret surface guy. I said, yeah, it's safe. He said, show me, show me, jump up and down on it. So, um, I jumped up and down on it and he says, okay, he's, yeah. He's yelling, and someone, somebody's over there, and when they get here, they help, you help them up, and when you come down, I said, okay, I don't know, he was Carl Rove, end quote. And then there is a picture of firefighter Robert Beckwith with President Bush. Well, um, President Bush has a microphone to his mouth, and, um, and he's standing on rubble and debris. And then we have his firefighter hat of 164 from Ground Zero. And then crowds prepared to meet um, President Bush. And then President Bush visits the Ground Zero to thank workers and volunteers. During his visit, he gives an impromptu speech where the workers call out, I can't hear you. And President Bush responds, I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knocked these buildings down will, all, will hear all of us soon. And then again, September 14th, 20. Um, He's saying 2021, but it's 2001. Lower Manhattan becomes more accessible when the restricted district knows the frozen zone. The shifts from the structure below 14th Street of the area of south of the Canal Street, originally established from the evening of 9-11 by New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, this bounded area is off-limits to non-rescue personnel and non-residents. Within this zone, Municipal buildings, schools, and businesses are closed. Streets are blocked off with barricades. Police transportation services halted. And only vehicles needed for the rescue and recovery efforts are permitted access. Approximately 37,000 households are located south of Canal Street. Residents have to show proof of residence to enter and are allowed only brief access to retreat possessions from their homes, many of which are damaged by the dust and debris from the collapsed damage or collapsed towers. While some lower Manhattan residents return within days, most are displaced for weeks and others for more than a year. And then there is another quote by uh, Carrie Courtney, a resident of a Battery Park City resident Returning to our apartment in five days after 9-11. Quote, it looks surreal, 
surreal. I mean, as I got closer and we were on Liberty Street, Liberty and South End, uh, it almost appeared and it was so dusty. It looked like a moonscape and the, and the whole neighborhood, every leaf, every blade of everything was covered in dust and there was cups of and papers and styrofoam, a cup of, a cup coffee and, and just everything strewn all over and everything was kind of that gray, gray white you had to be escorted by a police officer and the poor guy who got me found that I was on the 34th floor and there was no one and we had to walk from North Battery to South Battery and up 34 flights of stairs in pitch black there was no electricity and the stairwell was pitch black. Walking in this apartment was another surreal experience. It was like time stood still. Everything everything was just like where you left it. Every cup of coffee, everything. It was just like time stood still, end quote. And there's pictures of it. Like literally pictures. It's like crazy. Damaged apartments, construction equipments on the debris pile and visible through the blown out windows of the Cedar Street residence. Located immediately south of the World Trade Center site. And then there is another damaged apartment. It's like really damaged. It looked really white compared to what it looked like before. And it's, oof, looks horrible, looks horrific. It has, like, all these, like, boxes there, like, paper, and windows shattered, and stuff is moved. Uh, I don't know. It looks kind of out of place. And then we have September 16th, serving recovery workers, where there is the St. Paul Chapel. And in the St. Paul Chapel, in days and weeks of following other attacks, volunteers transformed St. Paul Chapel, located directly across from the World Trade Center site, into a brief center. Well, into like a relief center. The chapel is adorned with decorations and professional musicians played to comfort working visitors, um, workers visit from the chapel for meals and massages and for the and for first aid and simply to rest, reflect, and recuperate. Then there's another image where in the St. Paul Chapel, Dr. Arthur Gideon establishes a podiatry station outside of St. Paul's Chapel, where he's one of the several volunteer podiatricians or podiatricists or something like that, providing medical care and foot foot treatments for those working at Ground Zero. And then we have a Red Cross volunteer um, ID, a service organization in- issues a notification cards to allow authorized individuals to move freely within the um, organized areas at age of 85. Rolla Bud. Crick, a American Red Cross volunteer, spends 57 days in New York City on three separate assignments between September 2001 and March 2002. 
And then there's another quote by Janet Stevens, volunteer massage therapist at St. Paul's Chapel. Quote, this guy would come in, the guy would come in and they would take off their helmets and their hats and they might put them on something. And on most part, nobody bothered them. You could tell the time of day by the smell of the scent. Because when you go in in at night, there are always oatmeal and coffee. And then with four o'clock in the morning, you would start to smell the bacon. So if you if we were working and you weren't really keeping track of time because the guys would come back for for ever, anywhere from between 15 minutes or maybe half an hour, I would come in at two o'clock in the morning and I end up coming in on Wednesday nights. Before I did what I after what I, after I did that first night, I never knew I had so many people so grateful to me. So I became the Wednesday night lady. And it was such a privilege to have somebody put that label on you. Oh, you're the Wednesday night lady. And I come back and there is somebody coming, dragging himself, saying, I knew you'd be here unless you were, you were really sick and you would not miss that because you knew that with crap in your life, it was nothing compared to what they were bringing with them, end quote. Yep, and um, when serving recovery workers, volunteers begin serving hot meals outside St. Paul's Chapel, which has been functioning at Respite Center for Recovery Workers at the World Trade Center site since the day of the attacks. The American Red Cross and Salvation Army have been operating mobile and relief stations since 9-11 and opened indoor respite and relief centers shortly after the attacks, staffed largely by volunteers, and those centers offer a range of services, including meals, medical care, rest areas, and mental health support. Some are kept open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then mid-September 2001, locating the missing. The members of the New York City Fire Department began using GPS record location, which human remains are found. Firefighters using handheld devices receive notification when remains are found, enabling them to plot locations on a map of the area, this data is later shared by the New York um, City Office of Chief Medical Examiner with relatives who desire to know where their loved ones are recovered. Then we have September 17, 2001, the New York Stock Exchange reopens. The New York Stock Exchange reopens after the longest closure since the Greatest Depression well, not greatest, but the Great Depression in, in 1933. In honor of those killing the attacks, um, those killed in the attacks, the New York Stock Exchange observes two minutes of silence before trading begins. And they have a picture of the opening bell ceremony like they normally do. And um, there is a Julie Nealon Larry Manhattan advocate and former NYC restaurant owner um, Vine in concert with the reopening of the New York Stock Exchange says, quote, I dealt with the tragedy in the only way that I knew um, how, which 
was to delve in to rebuilding my neighborhood. So I knew, so I made the decision to reopen my restaurant, Vine, on Monday, September 17th. That would. That was a day that the New York Stock Exchange reopened. And my feeling was as being a visible business right across from the New York Stock Exchange, it was our f- duty to reopen on the 17th and to show the world that the terrorists are not going to keep us down. So I reopened my restaurant and we had no food deliveries and we were in the frozen zone. And they weren't allowing any cars downtown, but we opened the business. We cooked pasta that first day that was in the pantry because we didn't have any food. And I think we had three customers that day, end quote. Then we have, again, September 17, 2001, formalizing the response. Given the complexities of the hazards of ground zero the authorities mandates that all workers at the site be credential um, credentialed by this area most volunteers working within the site are replaced by professional workforce confronted with approximately 1.8 million tons of debris new york city department of design and construction ddc implements the tragedy declaring ground zero. The the DDC splits the site into four zones assigned with four construction companies, AMCE, Bolivis, or Bovis Lend License, Tully Construction, and Turner Construction oversight the particular quadrants. The DDC and the construction companies planned for the safe maneuver of equipment for ground zeros, precarious terrain where they, where heavy debris could shift and collapse. Then there's images of grapers, like literally grapers, like cranes removing steel and debris from the World Trade Center. And then we have another image as well where it's just another grapers of Debris is hoisted off in piles, and people are helping with that. And then there is another quote here from Pia Hoffman, um, a recovery worker at Ground Zero. Quote, I am in a grapeler, and all I'm doing is moving debris from point A to point B and at like 180 degree radius. And if you start swinging... With a graper and you saw the size of those machines, you don't stop them on a dime. Firefighter standing on the ground, I'm grabbing a claw full of rebar and I'm I'm swinging it and you saw us work. It was a go, go, go. And I came inches from talking or taking the guy's head off because he happened to walk in front of me. I started screaming and he apologized and I said, well, you came close to having your head knocked off, end quote. And then there's an image of the site credentials, and then there is the the demolition plan as well. And then we have again the same day, but the memorial service is held in Pennsylvania. There is people mourning on on the grounds, and there is a 
the rubble, like the American Cross presents the victims' families with vials of earth recovered from the vicinity of of Flight 93 crash site. So they have like a little vial with like the little remnants of it right there. And then we also have Never Forget Always in Our Hearts pamphlet. Like it's like a program memorial service for on September 17th and September 20th. Then we have the same date, it's September 17th, 2001, Lower Manhattan becomes accessible. So now they have the frozen map zone and they have containers of the World Trade Center dust. They have a picture of that and then they have attempting re-entry, people wanting to re-enter their homes. And they have papers of where they lived on what floor and where and what floor. And they have asbestos handlers. And they have volu- and like picked like three volunteers from the asbestos handlers um, image. And they have a video of the tour of the dust-coated apartment. And they have a volunteer cleaning crew picture as well. And there is a quote too by Catherine McVeigh Hughes. From Lower Manhattan resident from the air quality concerns in Lower Manhattan. Here she talks about her family's return to their apartment in the frozen zone or red zone in early 2002. Quote, we were very concerned about the dust in the apartment, in the building, and in the neighborhood. One of the fir- our first purchases for our apartment was a HEPA filter of air purifier and a HEPA vacuum cleaner as well. At that time, the red zone extended very high and you could not take a subway into Lower Manhattan, so we had to buy a wheelie, and we brought bought this big air purifier and walked it down from Canal Street into the red zone in our apartment. And we thought, well, let's see if this works. So we, so the air filters are supposed to last for six months, and we put it in our apartment. After our apartment had been cleaned by the insurance company, this filter is still full, completely filthy filthy in two weeks and then the video of the dust and debris Yeah, in the apartments, it's, like, kind of dusty and full of debris, and, like, there's, like, paintings on the wall, and it's, like, not, like, you know, how it should be, how, like, clean and and stuff that's, like, dirt and, and debris, and even on the paintings, it's just horrific. And it's just crazy. And then in September 18, 2001, the EPA declares the air safe. So the following previous announcements from the air quality test in Lower Manhattan reveals no cause of public concern. The U.S. Em- um, Environment Protection Agency, EPA, issues a press release announcement in the air 
uh, announcing that the air and drinking water near the World Trade Center site are safe. However, some preliminary tests conducted by the EPA had already indicated elevated levels of asbestos and heavy metals in the dust, in the dust uh, um, enveloped lower Manhattan when the towers collapsed. Made by pulverized building material and industrial chemicals and electronic mangled with jet fuel residue, the dust will be found to be to be contained with asbestos, lead, mercury, ben, benzene, um, silica, and man-made virtuous fibers. So a lot of chemicals. And then there's images of the dust magnified, which is gross. It looks like bacteria. It's kind of gross. And it's kind of gross looking, but kind of awesome looking in a scientific way. And the air quality test equipment is tested at the ground zero at and this is, the photo was taken on September 31st. Well, not September 31st, but it was October 31st, 2001, that they were testing the air quality. Then they have the dust expert gear that was used for that day. An image of that. And then we have 21st of September, 2001. Inside the Pentagon, it was gnarly. It was really bad. It was kind of looked like a bomb went off looking like that because that's how it looked. And then they have evidence where it was found. The FBI National Transportation of Safety Board investigates Flight 77 to cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, the so-called black boxes at the Pentagon on September 14. The cockpit voice recorder is so badly damaged that the investigators are unable to extract usable audio. However, the flight data recorder can be re- can be read. The document Flight 77 devastation from its intended flight path to Los Angeles, California, and its subsequent trip back towards Washington, D.C. And then they have um, inside the Pentagon where hijackers crashed 77, Flight 77, into the Pentagon. The plane's fu- fuels ledge picture here cuts a a swath of destruction through the offices located on the first and second floors. Okay, so now we're on September 24, 2001, where they're shifting from rescue to recovery, where the New York City mayor at the time, Rudolph Giuliani, announces that it's unlikely that any other survivors will be rescued from ground zero. The number a presumed dead which will be revised progressively downward as missing persons estimates to be re-evaluated is reported to be 6,453. The the day prior, the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner, OCME, had confirmed 261 dead, of which 194 have been identified. Acknowledging the the identities faced by family members who cannot obtain death certificates for loved ones whose remains have not been identified, New York State Governor George Patanke declares that New York State's life insurance companies will accept uniform affidavits in place of death certificates. And then there is images of the identifying remains of the World Trade Center site, like a little 
kind of like a um, a patch where you patch it onto like a piece of clothing. And then they have Marissa Denardo's recovered property, which is like her purse, her credentials, her credit cards, etc. And then Robert um, G. Schotzer, Schotzer recovered his property. Like he has money, he has like a blockbuster card, he has like a MasterCard, he has his ID, his MetroCard like his his stuff like all his credentials and stuff and then we have um dur durrell v pair cell recovery um like recovered property which is like um kind of like oil fuels cash um a necklace that he wore um kind of like hardware type stuff and he was from the FDM Rye Rescue Company for the time of 9-11. Because there was a lot of fire trucks and a lot of company and a lot of engines and a lot of ladders. So all of those were like a part of 9-11 and they went into the building. And what amazes me is that like in the documentary of the National Geographic version of 9-11, the people that were trying to escape saw firefighters coming up stairs and they told them to just go 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 down the stairs and continue going down the stairs and these people said they knew what they were doing and they knew what was going to happen that day and they knew that they sacrificed their lives to save ours and that's true because like when they tell someone like firefighters emmys um detectives police police officers um doctors nurses they sacrifice their lives every day and it's important to note that like these people literally went inside these buildings to help these people escape to safety whether they had smoke inhalation in their lungs from the fuel and from the flames and the the toxic fumes from the flight from like the, the the jet fuel coming out of the airplane but at least they were rescued and went and like got medical attention immediately. There was like one story I heard from the History Channel where it was about a woman. Like she was like Latina descent. She knew a little bit of English and she was pregnant at the time. And um, she was seeing her husband at the World Trade Center. And at the time when the planes crashed, these gentlemen saw her and she was like kind of injured and kind of like, cause she was like eight months, nine months pregnant. And she was literally going to have the baby. Like, literally. When, as they were going downstairs, they're like, she's going to have this baby. And she was having contractions. And she had the baby on, like, 9-11. 9-11 or 9-9, um, or the 12th. Or September 12th, either or. And even her daughter spoke out saying, like, I'm thankful that, like, I'm still alive. Because of those men, I'm still alive. And I've... I'm also a 9-11 survivor with my mom. And I was like, that is so brave that, like, you, like, some people don't want to speak up about their, what they, like, happened that day because it's so traumatic for them. And that's why some people, when something like that happens to them, they get PTSD, like, PTSD, post-traumatic stress um, disorder, um, which is sad because, like, 
like even when I'm on planes I get like not PTSD it's more like I get scared because I don't know what's gonna happen I don't know if like there's someone's gonna attack the plane or something like that because I'm kind of worried like that I'm a worrier like that when it comes down to like being cautious about like not just my surroundings but just like in general like if I see some see something on social media about like oh this attacker attacked like a teenager and sexually assaulted her I'm like looking for that person I'm like is he here in this train because I'm like scared for myself and for the safety of others I'm always I don't think I've always been like that I think I just started doing that like in high school like being more of a nurtured mom or I don't think I just learned it from just high school I think I learned it from early on from like when I was like in middle school where like my I would say so-called friends because they weren't really my friends if they really wanted to back me up on anything they didn't um but my point is that when we would go to Starbucks after school, they would give me their money because they were too shy to talk to the cashier. And being that I was a year older, they thought, hey, she's comfortable talking to people. Why doesn't she take our money and pay for our drinks? You know? And I would always do that. I would always use their money and pay for their drinks all the time. Like, for, like, you know, if they gave me 20 bucks and they asked for, like, vanilla pay, I would give... Like, they'll give me their money, like, 20 bucks, and they'll pay the difference of how much it was. Like, maybe six, seven bucks. So, yeah. That was basically the downplay of, like, me. And that's, like, what a mom does. Like, they pay for it. Like, don't worry, girls. I'll pay. So, that was, like, whole me. And I'm, oh, I don't think I've, like, I started doing that because, like, I don't think I had a choice. I did, but, like, if I didn't these girls wouldn't have been my friends and like I think that's what's the problem with today's society as well like us wanting to try to fit in to certain crowds of people in school it's just the hardest thing to endure like the hardest thing to like endure for like a preteen and like a teenager at the same time especially in high school it's hard to for us to adapt to different things because when I was started in middle school it was so hard because at the beginning of the year of freshman year of sixth grade I had no clue what I was doing and I'm and I laugh about it now because like I literally had no fucking idea what to do because in New York it's different than it is in Texas because my brother has like a list of classes and like I it doesn't show you like Oh, you go to this at a certain time. You go to this class at a certain time. It doesn't show it like that, like, like kind of like a, a schedule schedule. Like, it's like a list of the day and then the time on the side. It doesn't tell you that. It tells you, like, a, just like a list of classes. And he knows what time to go to the next class and what time to go to the other class. But in New York, we have it like a kind of like a list. Like, it's like, um, like vertical. It's like... Or is it vertical? I, I don't even know my math anymore. <laughs> it's horizontal. If it's horizontal. Oh my god, I can't even remember anymore. Anyway, if it's like going like down a, a line, it's it's like the days, the week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then diagonal, it's literally, or like going sideways is the time of the time the class starts and the class finishes and then the next on and so forth and that's how it was for all of us and anyone can attest to that because like it's true that's how our schedule is like in high school in New York because it's we 
like by the time by like a month in high school or in middle school you got your schedule down like that like fast like that's how it was with me like I would get my schedule down like fast like I'll know which class to go to within like a month or two weeks and I think that's how like fast it goes and um I always felt insecure of like how I read things like for example in sophomore year we were doing a reading of Edgar Allan Poe if anyone remembers Edgar Allan Poe stories oh those were the days um because Edgar Edgar Allan Poe had gone I don't know if he'd gone through something but he probably did but he um wrote like kind of eerie and drastic and um creepy stories I forgot there was like a few stories of Edgar Allan Poe hold on let me find them first let me find them first. Um, mm, let me find them first. Let me go here and find Edgar Allan Poe stories. Because I read a few of them. And yeah, Edgar Allan Poe stories list. Yeah. He had a few. Um, it was The Raven, The Telltale Heart. Oh, The Telltale Heart, I think it was my favorite one, if I'm not mistaken. Because this, The Black Cat was okay. Um, the cast of, um, the cast of Armatildo, I think. Yeah. I don't know if it's Evermore was his too, because Evermore was a good one too. Because Evermore, Evermore, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if it was, but the Telltale Heart was a good story. Then he um, read it because it's like really. Um, Oh, yeah, it's this one. Um, the Telltale Heart. It's like, true, nervous, very dreadfully nervous. I've been and I'm and am. But why will you say that? I am mad. The disease have sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then? How am I, how am I mad? Hearken. Kind of like, hearken and observe how healthily and how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how the first idea entered my brain. At first, it was conceived and haunting me day and night. Object here was none. Passion was none. I loved the old man. He never wronged me. He never gave me an insult for his gold. I had, had no desire. I think he, it was his eye. Yes, it was. One of his eye resembled that of a vulture with pale blue eye with a film over it whenever it fell upon me my blood ran cold and so by degrees very gradually i made up my mind to take the life of, an, of the old man thus rid myself of the eye forever now this is the point you fancy me you fancy me mad madmen know nothing 
but you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With that caution, with, with, with what caution and with what foresight, with what this simulation, I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the, the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, and oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient of my head, for my head, I put a dark lantern, all closed, closed so that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust in. I moved slowly, very slowly, so that I, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise at this? And then, when my head was, was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. And oh, so cautiously. Cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it, just so that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for sev seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed. So it was impossible to do the work. For, not, for it not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty, hearty tone and inquiring how he had pa passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watchman's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers. Of sagacity, I had scarcely, I, w I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph to think that I was opening the door little by little. And he did not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was black as pitch, and th with thick darkness, for the shutters were closed fastened through fear of robbers. And so, I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon tin fastening, and the old man sprung upon in the bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quiet still and said nothing. For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed listening, just as I had done, night af after night, hearkening the death watches in, in the wall. 
Presently, I heard a slight groan, groan, and I knew it was the groan of a mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of relief. Oh, no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of a soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the spell, the sound, I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it had welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I, I say I knew it well, and I knew that the old man felt and pitied him. Although I chuckled at heart, I knew the man had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, and when he had turned in, t- when he had turned in the bed, his fears had ever since grown upon him. He had been trying to fancy them, cause, cause, causeless, causeless, yeah. But could not. He had been saying to himself, "It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor, or it is merely a cricket." It was merely a cricket which had made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with those per- some superstitions. Or these super positions. But he had found them all in vain. All in vain because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard to feel the presence of my head within the room. And I had waited a long time, for pa- very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved a, to open a little, very little um, crevice in the lantern. So I opened it, and you cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily until a, at length a single dim ray, like the thread of, a, of the spider, shot f- from out the, the crevice and upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it, and I saw it with purple, perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else for the old man's face or person for I had directed the ray as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. Now I have not told you what what you mistake for madness is over acuteness of the senses. Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of an old man's heart. And increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet, I drained, I know, I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed, held the lanterns motionless, and I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, meantime the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder, very instinct. And, and, like, very instinct. And the, the old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, and I say louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So am I. 
and now at the dead hour of night, amid the dreadful silence of the, the old house, so a strange noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder, and I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would have been heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw a, the lantern and leaped into the room. And he shrieked once, only once. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. And I smiled. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on the muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It, it would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead, and I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone cold, like stoned, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eyes would trouble me no more. If you still think me mad... You would think no longer than I described the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse, and I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took three planks of the flooring of the chamber and di disposed all between the scattlings. I then placed, replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have been detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out. No stain of any kind. No blood spot. What's whatever. I had been too worried for that. A tube had been caught all. Ha ha. When I had made an end of those labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what I had now to fear. There entered three men, who introduced themselves to perfectly savagery of officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by the neighbor during the night, Suspicion of foul play and had been aroused. Inflammation had been lodged at the police office and they, the officers, had been deputied or dis, um, deputed or deputed to search the premises. I smiled for what I, I had to hear and I bade the gentlemen welcome. I shrieked and said to my own in my dream the old man I mentioned was absent in the country and I told my visitors all over the house. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber and I showed them his treasures secure, undisturbed and in the enthusiasm of my confidence I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues while I myself in the wit in the wild audacity to my perfect triumph placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim the 
officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them I was singularly at ease. I sat, and while I answered cheerily, they scattered, though they chatted for familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied the ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing came more distinct, and it continued. It became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but I but it continued and gained def, um, defect, defect, definitiveness, definitiveness, yeah, definitiveness, until at length I found that noise was not within my ears. No doubt I grew very pale and I talked more fluently with the heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was low, dull, quick sound which made a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently. But the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gastric calculations. But the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro for heavy strides as if excited to, excited to fury by the observation of the men. But the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated upon the boards and the noise arose all over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no. They heard, they suspected, and they knew. They were making mockery of my horror. And as I thought, as I thought, and as I think, but anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> I can hear those hypocritical smiles no longer well he said i could bear he said i could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer i felt like i had a scream like i felt that i must scream or die and now again hark louder 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 villains i shrieked dissembled no more i admit the deed tear up the planks here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. And that is the story of the Telltale Heart. And it was really long when I read it when I was in high school in sophomore year. It was like two, three pages long. And I'm like, holy moly. It was really long. Um, the Cast of Armatillo, that one was a good one too. It was a story... From Edgar Allan Poe, of course, um, it says right here, Fornatu, yeah, Fornatu, and I think he kind of just boards him up in, like, the wall, I believe, and that's, like, the story, and it's lengthy, too, because most of his stories are, like, like, they're really lengthy, his stories, but I'm not going to read the cast of Armatildo. Because it's like really, it's really good. And this was actually published in 1846. 
and so was, well, not was, but, like, the Telltale Heart was published in 1843. But, as you can see, they were really dark and really, like, really, really dark stories. So, yeah, but back to 9-11. Um, September 24, 2001, the FBI closes field investigation of Flight 93 crash site. So, so there is, like, a, a part, a fragment part of the airplane of Flight 93 in the, where it crashed. Um, then also there is, um, another one where it's, like, a, the flight recorder. So it, like, the, it was, like, um, documents from the plane path after hijacker seized control of the cockpit. So it was a data recorder that reveals that the hijackers set a new course for Roland Reagan Washington National Airport, located near Washington, D.C., along with other evidence that this information led investigators to conclude that the hijackers intended to target. Intended target was a landmark in Washington, D.C., possibly the United States Capitol building. But actually, as it turns out, it actually wasn't the Capitol building. It was um, the White House. They were going to literally crash into the White House. So in the documentary of um, George W. Bush, um, 2011, after 10 years of 9-11, he didn't conducted an interview with the National Geographic saying that that day it was so devastating that he couldn't compose a pissed off type of face. He had to compose a, a structural face that's like shows kind of like no emotion at the time, like literally no emotion, just like he had to have a forefront, have like some sort of face that's like doesn't show like it doesn't phase him because he was literally on his way traveling to like a school, elementary school and paying attention because he was doing educational reform at the time. So he was doing that and then he got the message that the World Trade Center was attacked and he didn't think it was nothing of it at first. Honestly, I wouldn't think it was anything of it at first. It probably was like an uncontrolled plane. That's what he said. Like, it was like an uncontrolled plane. Maybe it was like an accident. But then when he was told that the South Tower was attacked by a plane crash again, by another plane, he was like, okay, America is under attack, but we have to finish this and wrap, kind of like wrap this up. And like, I have to make like a press conference, like a press, like conference, just me talking saying things so there's that and um then after that he boarded his plane and he told his secret service agents they're going back to washington dc to the white house and they're like no no no. you're not going to washington dc to the white house no we're going to take you to a secure location to a military base an off an off books military base so nobody will know where you are except for us your security and the pilot okay and your chief of staff that's it and he was like okay and kind of like laughing it off like okay and he just kind of went with it because like he probably knew in his head like why he had to go to an off base thing like an off based um 
military base. And I would have understood, too, like, why they would put him there, you know? So I kind of I kind of get it at the same time. But yeah, um, they sent him to a military base um, kind of close to where Flight 93 or was. And um, it was a good thing that they kind of sent President um, George Bush to that military base. Because if he hadn't done that, as instructed, as uh, Secret Service said, he would have went to Washington, D.C., went to the White House, and the plane would have hit the White House, and he would have died. And that would have been an assassination on the U.S. president, and that would initiate war with the terrorist. But, um, yeah. Um, so he went, and he's still alive to, to this day, which is surprising. Because most president, like, I've been told by my government teacher that, like, if you're president for X many years, you come up with health problems. Because Teddy Roosevelt had health problems. Um, who else had health problems? There were multiple people that had health problems. I don't think Obama had any health problems after his um, presidency, his two-term presidency. But then we have, in late October 2001, salvaging artifacts, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey appoints task force, like a task force of architects and museum consultants to salvage our um, historically significant remnants of the World Trade Center ranging from multi-ton steel beams to human-scale artifacts such as bike rack in the World Trade Center objects that will be stored in Hangar 17 at New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport, an unused 18,000-square-foot facility. A large section of these objects will later go on display on 9-11 Memorial Museum. Then we have another, and then they have, like, images of, like, what the artifacts are, like the, like, parts of, like, of um, trident-shaped columns marked save, indicated that they will be preserved as a historic purpose of Hangar 17. And then there is another image of another, a bent steel, it's like a bent steel thing that is also displayed as a, in the 9-11. And then they have this, um, commuter train that was connected to Manhattan in New Jersey and run under the World Trade Center are halted in 9-11 at the emergency scales. And, it's, and the train says PATH on it. So that's also in the 9-11 Memorial Museum. And then there's also emergency vehicles at Fresh Kills. A video from May 2002 features a recovery emergency vehicle that had been transported to Fresh Kills landfill that was kind of like crushed and um, nothing on it. Like nobody got hurt or injured. And then we have September 2011, 2001, I keep saying 2011 or 2021. Um, September 2000. One and through May 2002, 
gathering the hero highway supporting like supporters carry signs and banners to gather along the west side highway on manhattan's west side to cheer for the recovery and relief workers traveling to and from ground zero many supporters um cambridge at the intersection of christopher street and west street in greenwich village and this location becomes the point thank you and there's an image of people holding signs saying like thank you for your dedication and your hard work images and there is a quote from detective anthony Kennedy from the nypd quote there were many there were people in the streets american flags and signs thanking um thanking us and then there's another one by rob uh, robin tuck a volunteer quote that gave me so much strength to see those workers wave to us end quote and Early October 2001, FDNY launches a health initiative for the recovery effort of Ground Zero, exacts a physical and med- uh, mental toll on workers. In order to monitor the health of participating firefighters and EMS workers, the New York City Fire Department opens a medical program that builds on and benefits from pre-employment health evaluations from the FDNY had been conducted with its members since before 9-11, and by 2016, 94% of eligible firefighters and EMS workers had been enrolled. Several post-exposure um, programs like the FDNY had been cons- um, consolidated in 2011 under the umbrella of the WTC Health Program, hosted by local facilities known as the Clinical um, the Clinical Centers of Excellence, in addition to FDNY's World Trade Center Medical Monitoring and Treatment Program, Clinic Centers of Excellence will include the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, the Eakin School of Medicine of Mount Sinai, the New York University School of Medicine at Bellevue Hospital, North Shore LIJ Medical Group in Queens, State University of New York at Stony Brook, in the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, Rutgers University. And there is a quote saying um, from Detective Glenn Klen from NYPD said, quote, my family told me that I wasn't myself, end quote. And then there was also another quote from Deputy Chief James Riches, retired NYPD officer, um, not NYPD, um, retired firefighter, says, quote, I started looking at my fingernails and they were getting purple. And there is a ground zero like medication post for 9-11 of like sickened by ground zero in his 9-11 series. Like his 9-11 still killing series photographed by Alan Tenenbaum documents the ongoing health struggles of rescue and recovery workers. So... It's basically showing what they had to, t- like, what they took at this time. Like, now. Like, what they're taking now. So, they take asthma and, sin- and sinuses, like a, sp- a Spurba inhaler, a Preventil inhaler, and um, hypertension, Procardia, Dovan, and an anxiety, Lazar. Lazopam, and then they have PTSD, PTSD and depression, which is like an ethixer, XR, insomnia, tenzodone, 
and high blood pressure pelvis, pelvics, pelvics. And then they have a deep sea nasal spray and pre pren prendison And they have an ad advar advar medicine on the like and it's like kinda like a chart of the medications after nine eleven that that person is taking and it shows you like kind of like a list of what they're taking in order to make themselves feel better. And then there is another one where um, Officer Paul Johnson from the NYPD service unit responds to the World Trade Center. And at the time, his lungs, um, three years after his lungs shut down, requiring Johnson to use oxygen. So the officer, Paul Johnson, of the NYPD Serv- Emergency Service Unit responds to the World Trade Center the morning of September 11, 2001, and worked at the site for the duration of the recovery period. But then his lungs were shot in 2015, and they were shut down, requiring him to use an oxygen tank. And then we have October 6, 2001, the last federal... Rescue team leaves the World Trade Center site. So oh, there's a quote from Lieutenant William Keegan from the Port Authority Police Department saying, quote, there, there's all these guys sitting on the back of a pickup truck. Each and every one of them had a track, had a track of, a wh- of white where their tears had come down. And then there is recovery of remains of the message written on the FDNY Ladder Company 43 Stroke Rescue Basket. The artifact is now displayed in the 9-11 Memorial Museum. Then we have the, like, the paragraph of the saying of the last federal rescue team leaves the World Trade Center site. So, and they leave the World Trade Center site. The official mission of many workers who remained on the site shifts to recovery. As remains were recovered, symbolic protocols emerge around the act of removing them from the site and the remains of uniformed service personnel were typically faced in a portable stretcher draped with an American flag and escorted from the site by an anchor by an honor guard who cons- um, consisting of the fallen responders peers and members of the clergy which worked is well worked sorry well worked is temporarily halted in time similar honors will be conferred on civilians and then we have another image. Concerns about the slur, flurry wall evacuate. The workers discover a vault line, um, discover a fault line adjacent to the subterranean slurry wall encircling the World Trade Center site, a waterproof barrier designed to hold back seepage of the nearby Hudson River during the original evacuation of the site in 1960s. The slur wall survived tense strain during the tower's collapse, and engineers feared it would it would rupture, causing flooding that would comp- um, compromise recovering operations and potentially affect areas of Lower Manhattan. In months that follow, engineers and construction workers fortified the slurry wall and ensured that it stands strong. And this was October eighth, two thousand one. And then there is a slurry wall tied back. Operation. So there's like a tied back artifact at 9 11, and um, 
There is a quote from Luis Mendez, the vice president of design and construction at the 9-11 Memorial and former New York City Department of Design and Construction, DDC, assistant deputy commissioner. Deputy commissioner discusses the impact of the slurry wall of the recovery. It says, quote, the slurry wall became one of the top priorities. And then we have October 11th, 2001. The memorial service held at the Pentagon. The U.S. President George W. Bush delivers a keynote remarks at the memorial service held at the Pentagon parade field. And the 20,000 invited guests include several thousand family members of 9-11 victims as well as survivors. And there is an image of the memorial loss, like a little memorial boxes containing vials of debris from the Pentagon crash site was present to the victims' families. And now it's an, an artifact at the Memorial Museum. And then we have a vial inside the Pentagon-shaped box. Like, it shows you inside the box. It shows you the image inside the box of the vial that containing the, the remnants of what happened at the crash site of, at the Pentagon. So... There is that image, and then we have October 13, 2001, where access roads reopen. The workers complete the vehicular access road route in the World Trade Center site made from compacted rubble and intact foundational elements of the South Tower named the Tully Road. After the construction com company responsible for managing recovery work under the New York City Department of Design and Construction at this section of the site, the road allows heavy equipment access to the pile, helping to expedite debris removal. And then we have a mid-October 2001 survivor tree rescued. And then they plant a tree for survivors. In midsummer, the New York Department of Design and Construction worker dis and discovers a really burnt um, calorie pear tree in the debris field at former World Trade Center Plaza, despite devastating damage, the tree remains some leaves. On October 31st, the tree is, re is removed and transported to Van Cordeland Park Nursery in the Bronx, where it is cared for by the New York, New York City Department of Parks and Recreation, and the tree will eventually grow from 8 feet to over 30 feet tall. And it now stands on the plaza for the National September 11th Memorial. So there is like blue ribbons for the survivors. Like they put like blue ribbons to the trees as part of the special ceremony. And it's really thoughtful. And there is Ron Vega from the WTC recovery worker says, quote, it was in the middle of this debris field and it was sprout and it sprouted out leaves, end quote. In October 22nd, um, 2001, dismantling the, the, the South Tower facade, I think, facade, facade. So there is that. Um, after a month of sharing off the South Tower facade steel sections using the worker, what a worker's called a haircut method, the remaining structure is pulled down by mid-December workers 
will dismantle what is left of the North Tower facade. Which is literally just like, kind of like slanted on, on, like, like on its side. And it's just horrific. And the haircut too. It looks burnt, mostly. And um, we have October 28, 2001, where it's the memorial service held at Ground Zero. And there is a quote from Rosemary O'Keefe, a former commissioner of New York Committee Assistance Unit. Says, quote, we needed to give most, we needed to give, give them some kind of token because most of them didn't have anything to bury, end quote. And then there is a pamphlet of the World Trade Center for Family Memorial for October 28, 2001. And there is a memorial loss, like memorializing loss, a monogamy urns containing earth from the vicinity of the World Trade Center site was given to victims' families. This artifact was displayed at 9-11 Memorial Museum. So it's basically like an urn of the crash site. The city of New York organizes its first official memorial service for the victims' families at the Ground Zero. Thousands attend their interfaith service, which takes place on Church Street. Religious leaders offer benedictions and a number of musicians perform recovery work stops for this ceremony. And then we have another few ones where it's October 31st, 2001, handling unusual materials. And then um, after much planning and increased security, an estimated of $200 million worth of gold and silver Silver is removed from the Bank of Nova Scotia vault trapped under um, four World Trade Center. Also in October 2001, the General Service Administration and the Federal Emergency Management Agency salvaged colonial era archaeological artifacts originally excavated from the African burial ground in Lower Manhattan. These have been stored in the in the research laboratory at Sixth World Trade Center since 1982. The archaeological discoveries will be made at the World Trade Center site in the months and years to come. In July 2010, the construction workers excavating the site of future underground vehicles security center at the intersection of Washington and Liberty Streets will come upon a portion of the wooden hauled sailing vessel dating from the 18th century. And then we have November 2nd, 2001 firefighters protest. Firefighters stage a rally at Ground Zero to protest plans to scale back their presence on site, arguing that they have a right to continue searching for their missing colleagues. Their actions are response to the October 30th announcement that city officials plan to cut the number of uniformed personnel at the site in order to return staff to their assigned elsewhere in the city. According to this plan, out of the proximity of 150 firefighters, New York City Department officers and Port Authority Police Department officers on duty on the site, 25 from each agency would remain. Ultimately, the city would revisit this position and allow 75 firefighters to remain on site. And then we have December 2001, where the last Red Cross Respite Center closes. The American Red Cross Respite Center are closed and responsibility for the provision of meals to recovery workers at the World Trade Center site is consolidated under the Salvation Army. 
at Murray and West Streets, 35,000 square foot tent houses and massive canteens operated by the Salvation Army, nicknamed the Taj Mall, the Taj Mall, because of its size, shape, and white walls. And the tent offers hot meals and relief from the harsh conditions at the site of New York City. Heads into winter and the Red Cross continues to provide mental health support and first aid inside this tent. And this respite center would close at the end of the recovery period. Then we have December 9, 2001, when celebratory Hanukkah at the World Trade Center site. And the eight-foot-tall menorah, sorry, menorah. I didn't know how to spell menorah, so I just said menorah or something like that. So my apologies to people that are Jewish out there. Um, An eight-foot-tall menorah is lit at ground zero to mark the beginnings of the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. In accordance with traditional candles, will also be lit on the following seven nights. Rabbi Joseph Panaski, the Jewish chaplain of New York City Firefighter Department, speaks at the first night lighting ceremony. And then we have December 19th, 2001. The fires at the World Trade Center site are declared extinguished. The New York governor, George Petoskey, announces that all fires at Ground Zero have been extinguished. Firefighters remain on standby in case quote-unquote, hot spots erupt. There is video footage and firefight at ground zero images as well. And then we have late December 2001 clearing progress. The pile of debris at ground zero estimated high as 70 feet above ground and had has been reduced to street level. In early July, the new New York City Department of Design and Construction passed by day-to-day supervi- supervision of the site to a private construction company, Bovis, no, Bovis Lend Lease, but continue continues to supervise the overall operation, including the removal of human remains. December 25, 2001, celebrating Christmas at the World Trade Center site. In an effort to, um, to boost worker morale, volunteers adorn the site with traditional holiday decorations. The Salvation Army serves a special holiday meal. And there is an image of a tree and like a, cro- I believe it's, it's the cross that they found on the site that was like, that would give them hope. And it was a 37 foot tall tree. And there was candy canes too. Seasonal decoration by Salvation Army uh, by Deborah Jackson was given into the Memorial Museum. When it was like a broken candy cane with googly eyes on it and um, a furry button nose, like a furry nose on it. And Ron Vega said, Ron Vega from the WTC recovery worker said, quote, Christmas was very quiet, end quote. And then we have December 27, 2001. The mayor gives his farewell address at the World Trade Center site. After eight years in office, outgoing New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani chooses St. Paul's Chapel across the street from the World Trade Center site as the revenue of the farewell address. And he closes his speech by urging construction of the quote-unquote Surin Beautiful Memorial at the World Trade Center site. 
And then we have December 30, 30th, 2001, where it's the opening public viewing platform. The public viewing platform opens accommodate the thousands who gravitate the ground zero to pay their respects to victims of the disaster and to witness the devastation firsthand. The New York officials worked with architects David Rockwell, Kevin Kennan, Elizabeth Deller, Rick, um, Ricardo Scalafito to recreate this temporary ramp and platform at the Fulton Street. This plywood walls were deliberately left bare so that the visitors may inscribe their own memorial thoughts and read the messages left by others. The public viewing platform complements the plat- a platform already in place in a family for family members. Respect for families' wishes for a private place in which to mourn, pray, and remember their loved ones. The city had commissioned construction workers at Ground Zero to build a platform adjacent to the World Trade Center site on Liberty Street and West Street as a protected overlook onto the site. Over time, it was transformed into a memorial covered with flowers, teddy bears, and cards. Its wooden surfaces, including the support post, were inscribed with personal messages to those who had not yet been found. Then we have January 1st, 2002, new mayor visits Ground Zero at his first day in office. The mayor, Michael Bloomberg, visits Ground Zero on his first day in office. The mayor visits privately with, with workers to thank them for their service. And then they have February 28th, 2002, the Century 21 department store reopens. I think that's amazing. I didn't know Century 21 was open, like, ever, or a store of Century 21 was ever open in the 2000s, like, in the early 2000s. I didn't know that. Like, I really didn't. And I thought that was shocking to me, because I was like, what? There is a an opening? Like, there is, like, there is a Century 21 at the time, even before I was born? What? It's, like, amazing, but um, it was shocking when I just read this, and I was like, what? And then Century 21, the largest department store located just east of the World Trade Center site, reopens after an extensive renovation. After 9-11, store owners Raymond and Isaac Gindy committed to remaining in the lower Manhattan as a symbolic patriotic act a protest against the terrorists who attacked the World Trade Center complex. Shoppers form lines around the block. Then we have March 1st, which was the day my uncle, like, my uncle's birthday was March 1st. So, um, but he wasn't born in 2002. He was born on, um, um, what was it, May? No. He was born in March 1st, 1980. So, it's like 43. The ramp is completed. The workers at the World Trade Center site complete the new access and aggressive pathway for the construction traffic. A 460-foot long metal ramp stretching from the street level to the bedrock Seven stories below. The ramp makes it impossible for the Tully 
road to be dismantled, allowing recovery workers to search for human remains in this area of the South Tower footprint. Then there's the descending of the ramp video on here, and then there is a Bible found compacted of the South Tower debris, and then there is a construction ramp picture, and there is a construction ramp picture at night, like with lights and everything, and then we have May 8, 2002, recovering remains. Um, on this date, the remains of 1,107 victims have been identified. And then we have May 13th, 2002. The American Express returned to the World um, Financial Center. The corporate headquarters of the World Express Company returned to its offices across the street from the World Trade Center site like American Express, which was forced to operate from temporary locations throughout the tri-state area after its headquarters sustained damage on 9-11. Thousands of large and small businesses were impacted by the attacks. A number of those closest to the ground zero suffered crippling losses of revenue. Economic development officials in New York City and across the, st the state sought to assist small businesses to retain and retain large companies in lower manhattan in order to rebuild the area's economy and then we have may 28th the cutting down of the last column the construction workers cut down the last column the final intact column of the twin towers and the in a large but private event held for and by the recovery and relief workers. The last column is lowered into the flatbed truck shrouded in, in black and draped with an American flag and bagpipers and drummers play Amazing Grace. The last column previously held support the, t the Tully Road, a temporary hull road, and it became a marker for the last known location for many first responders who were killed in, in the lobby of South the South Tower, an area that could not be searched while the roadbed was in place. In March 2002, a city officials had begun planning this a ceremony to mark the completion of the recovery and cleanup of, at the World Trade Center site. They selected that this last piece of the upright steel to serve as a symbolic focus of the ceremony. The last column went on to resume symbolic status of for the site recovery workers and those who witnessed these efforts. And um, then we have May 30th, 2002, the last column ceremony held to mark the end of recovery. So then we have workers remove the last column and then there's people gathered around like Mayor Bloomberg at the time was there and New York Rudolph Giuliani, the former mayor, and the mayor Michael Bloomberg, and the New York State Governor George Patanke, um, was seen um, in the image with others to salute the last column as it leaves the site. And there is a truck with it on it with an American flag on it. Because, again, it was taken from the crane and placed onto a truck 
and then it was covered with like a black tarp alongside of it was attached with uh, the American flag with flowers and whatnot and it was let out of New York City to go to a um a dumpster like a garbage site but all people like aligned there like military officers and all that stuff like recovery workers government officials victims family members volunteers and other participants in the line line the ramp to view the ceremony which is kind of remarkable because there are a lot of people there and afterwards after the recovery we have um, the, the ceremony removal of the last column, the major work of cleanup and recovery at the World Trade Center site officially concluded on May 30, 2002. The total death toll of 9-11 attacks on all three sites would ultimately be a number of 9,000, not 9,000, that's a lot, sorry. I didn't mean to say 9,000, I meant 2,977 because I was looking at the number 9 and then 977. Um, I was looking at that and I said 9,000, so... It was 2,977 people from over 90 nations. 2,753 of those individuals perished as a result of the attack of the World Trade Center. The years since 9-11 have been efforts of the remember of the victims, safeguard survivors, and rebuilds some of what was lost. National memories have been constructed at all three crash sites. The September 11th victim compensates fund provided financial compensation of 9-11 survivors and victims' relatives. Meanwhile, many who worked on the recovery are suffering serious physical and mental health effects and had to fight for benefits that would provide for them and their families. And on August 21st, 2003, EPA ev- evacuates the, its post-9-11 performance not evacuates, evaluates, sorry. Almost two years after 9-11, the Office of Inspector General of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, which has authority to conduct independent audits of the agency's programs, established a report of evaluating the agency's earlier assurances of the air of the ground zero. At ground zero was safe to breathe, referring to the particular um, particular to a press release issued a week after the attacks, the Office of Inspector General writes, quote, When EPA made a, made a September 18 announcement that the air was safe to breathe, it did not have the sufficient data and analysis to make such a blanket, blanket statement, end quote. The report also faults the White House Council on Environmental Quality, ECQ, for pressing the EPA to replace cautionary language in its statement with more reassuring language. According to EPA, when a draft of the press release warned that the air in lower Manhattan could be hazardous, the CEQ, which is the Environmental Quality, the Council of the Environmental Quality, recommended deleting the warning and added, quote, our tests show that it's safe for New Yorkers to go back to work in New York's financial district, end quote. In response, the report White House officials, as well as the EPA's leadership, argued that the report oversimplifies a complex situation. September 5th, 2003, the World Trade Center Health Registry opens. 
There's a quote from Dr. Arthur Gideon, the volunteer uh, pediatrist at St. Paul's Chapel, says, quote, almost a year, year and a half later, I started coughing more frequently, end quote. And there's another quote from Louisa Griffith Jones, a lower Manhattan resident on 9-11. Quote, I don't know what I breathed in, but I know that, that within me is that day, end quote. And there is a, like a mag- New York magazine or something, or a New York um, article um, on September 20th, 2004, did 9-11 make us sick? The toxic cloud over in lower Manhattan left thousands with ill, ailing lungs and is now prompting fears of cancer, of a cancer cluster. Um, and so, in September 2004, issue of New York Magazine includes a cover story about 9-11 related health effects. It features a profile of NYPD detective John Wilcott, who was diagnosed with leukemia after several months of work at Ground Zero and fresh kills in the Staten Island landfill where World Trade Center debris was examined. Leukemia is one of the most, uh, is one of more than 50 types of cancer that will later be linked to the WT, the World Trade Center disaster. But it says the New York Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, the CDC or um, NY Health, um, together with the Federal Agency of Toxin, Substance, and Disease Registry, um, launches the World Trade Center Health Registry to monitor for 20 years the health of people who were exposed to the World Trade Center disaster. The World Trade Center Health Registry will become the largest post-disaster public health registry in the U.S. history. And with more than 71,000 individuals from one from all 50 states enrolled, they will include people who lived and worked in Lower Manhattan, local school children, and rescue and recovery workers who served in ground at Ground Zero. The registry's search scientists, no research scientists, will track a range of negative physical and mental health effects within the uh, population. In the registry's first survey between 2003 and 2004, two-thirds of the adult restraints will report new and or worsening respiratory symptoms. By 2007, 10% of adults will develop new cases of asthma. A 2011 and 2012 study will find that more than 15% of enrollees are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, while nearly 50% are battling depression. And then we have June um, 2004, um, the September 11th Victim Compensate Fund expires, where it's um, a victim compensation fund includes its business offering, offering nearly three years of operation established by the Congress in September 2001. The fund was established to provide compensation to any individual or relatives of deceased individual who was physically injured or killed as a result of the September 11th attacks. 97% of the eligible victims' families submitted claims to the fund. In total, the fund issued 5,560 awards, totaling more than $70 billion. With the passage of James um, Z. Draga, Zadraga, and 9-11 Health and Compensation Act in 2011, the fund had been 
will be reactivated to cover losses sustained by individuals with net 11 related health issues. September 2006, the instruction of the Zagarda Act. Um, years after individuals whose health had been affected by 9-11 have fought for legal remedies for their injuries. In 2006, members of Congress joined them in the cause, U.S. Senator Robert Mendez of New Jersey and U.S. Representative Carol Mulaney of New York introduced legislation to provide long-term physical and mental health care for survivors of and responders of the attacks of the World Trade Center. The bill is named after James Zadragata Act in 2006 after the New York homicide detective who died earlier in the year at the age of 34 who had worked at Ground Zero for roughly three years. The bill had not yet come to vote, so it will be reintroduced in 2007 and 2008 when it will be renamed the James um, Zadraga Uh, 9-11 Health and Compensation Act. In 2009, the New York Senator Christy Gilbrand will sponsor the bill in the Senate. The Congress will pass the, the Zadragata Act in December 2010. Then we have um, September 11, 2008, where the Pentagon Memorial is inaugurated. The first National Memorial... Um, of 9-11 victims opens the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia on the 7th anniversary of the attacks designed by Julie Beckman and Keith Kessman and aligned with the flight path of the hijacked American Airlines Flight 77. The memorial commemorates the 184 victims who were on the airplane or at the Pentagon. The memorial complex is scheduled to expand in 2018 with the planned opening of the 9-11 Pentagon Visitor Education Center. June 10, 2010, the lawsuit over health damage and in settlement. We have here the rescue and recovery workers who claim illness traced the exposures of ground zero dust who sued New York City for compensation settled their case for $712 million dollars. During the seventh year legal battle that ended with the settlement, more than 10,000 separate lawsuits were enrolled into one, and the consolidated case invo involved thousands of plaintiffs, hun several hundred lawyers, and tens of millions of pages of court documents. Roughly 1,000 people who cleaned buildings near the World Trade Center site will pursue their own claims in federal court. As of early of 2015, about one-third of these plaintiffs will reach settlements. In March 2004, 12 Lower Manhattan residents, workers, and students had filed a separate lawsuit against the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, alleging that the agency failed to ensure the area was safe before people were followed to well, allowed to return. A judge ruled in 2006 that the case had enough merit to proceed, but in 2008, the appeals court dismissed the suit. Then we have a year later, but in January 2011, but it's January 2nd, the Zadragata Act becomes law now. President Barack Obama signs into law that James Zadragata, a 9-11 Health Compensation Act, into law. And first introduced into Congress in September 20, 2006, 
the Zajirata Act established the World Trade Center Health Program to monitor and treat survivors who responded to all three crash sites who have developed 9-11 related health conditions, including respiratory and mental health issues. The World Trade Center Health Program used as used a defined set of illness to determine who qualifies and in September 2012, the program will expand to benefit patients suffering from 50 types of cancer. Additional cancer types will be added to the qualifying list in 2014. Patients are eligible to treatment at six local facilities known as the Clinical Centers of Excellence. The Zeldergrad Act will also reactivate the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund endowment since 2004 to cover losses sustained by individuals of 9-11 related health issues. The first operational period of the fund awards more than $7 billion to more than 5,500 5, applicants injured and survivors of the families and victims. Under the, the Zydergrada Act, more than 12,000 additional claims from people uh, with 9-11 related illnesses have been determined eligible for compensation. Congress will um, uh, reauthorize the Zaldrogata Act in December 2015 after a lengthy lobby effort by 9-11 recovery workers and others. The new law will extend the compensation fund for the additional years and the, w- the, w- the WTC, the World Trade Center Health, Health Program, through 2090. There's a quote from John Feel. The founder of the Feel Good Foundation says, quote, there are still men and women still sick and dying. There is a image of a person holding a sign on the ground zero recovery timeline saying 9-11 healthcare is, is not political, it's humanitarian. And then we have the Feel Good Foundation pamphlet which is um, just like the Statue of Liberty and like responders. Um, Feel Good Foundation of the Tuesday's Children and 9-11 Park Committee presents 10 years later an intimate evening celebrating champions. And the quote was, no responders left behind. Kind of like the saying in the movie Trolls when they say, no tro- leave no troll left behind. And Tuesday, September 8th, 2011, that was the day that was happening, and it happened from 6.30 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. And it was at Watermill Inn, 711 Smithtown Bypass, Smithtown, NY, with the zip code 11787. And the website, feelgoodfoundation.com, is on the bottom. Then we have the legislative victory honoring American heroes. So the um, the New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and members of New York Congress delegation celebrated the passage of G- uh, James Zeldrigada 9-11 Health and Compensation Act on December th- 23rd, 2010. Ten days later, the President Barack Obama signed the bill into law. And then we have a video from The Daily Show. Now you see the, uh, the Senate is filibustering uh, uh, the bill. What, what's, what's going through your mind? Like in this Daily Show, um, takes up the cause. Many observers are credited the Daily Show, its former host John Stewart, and bringing unprecedented attention to the campaign to pass the Del- the Zeldrigada Act in December twenty 20- on December sixteen on December sixteen twenty ten. Stewart 
who is also a member of the NY Memorial Board of Directors, hosted the for- hosted first responders on the show to talk on air about their illnesses. Congress passed the Zaldrigada Act less than a week later. And here is what is said on the talk show. Now you see the, uh, the Senate is filibustering uh, uh, the bill. What, what's, what's going through your mind as you're watching this process go down? Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're disgusted. We're disappointed. And, uh, and uh, unfortunately, we're hurt. We're patriots to this country. It's like everybody here. We went down there for the love of this country and for the love of our city. Right. We didn't turn our back on anybody. For us to be here now, nine years later, still fighting just for, for our health, for our compensation. You, you are suffering from stage four throat I have cancer. A stage four inoperable throat cancer on both uh, and on both lymph nodes. Uh, you, you're suffering from. I got heart disease and lung disease from being down from there. From being down there. It's heart, lung, back, uh, brain issues, cancer. On 9/11, when you heard that the towers got hit, and you were with your, your colleagues in the NYPD and the fire department, when you guys voted, obviously you needed a supermajority uh, to vote to go down there, right? I mean, of you course. Vote, yeah, you need a supermajority. So. <laughs> We barely made it by yeah. one vote. Were you able to get, were there people, we, uh, one vote we got. Did we you have to promise things to the other firefighters or the other policemen, like, just vote with us on this to go down to the towers to save people, and, and we'll do, we'll have chili on Friday night. <laughs> yeah, normally in daily talk shows like this, they make jokes here and there about that, but I don't think it was quite, like, you know, hilarious to make a joke about that, because, like, they, like, literally put their life on the line for things like this and it just goes to show you that these people they in this part and like these first responders were right because they said like we didn't turn our backs on on America we didn't turn our backs and say like you know like let these people perish no we were like we're gonna do this we're gonna do this for our country and we're gonna make it out of here alive and we're gonna help these people get out of the building safely they didn't say hey we're gonna let these people suffer and die in these buildings They did not say that. They said, we're going to go in those buildings. We're going to come out of there and survive this. But most of these firefighters did not come out. And most of these first paramedics and first responders, EMTs, did not survive. And and FDNY and NYPD and EMTs did not survive. And these people knew what was to come. And they knew what they signed up for. Some people don't really appreciate what they've got until they, like, realize it, like, like kind of like crap or, hey, like, these people did so much for us and, like, we take it for granted by doing this, this and that, by saying stupid shit or saying or doing stupid shit on the streets, like, raping or harming people on the streets. Because we don't know, God forbid, these people that worked at the World Trade Center are now, like, criminals now. We don't know that. But, like, at the same time, it's also from making you to think, like, maybe these people had a hard life now because they couldn't ha- keep a stable job because of what they had to go through with 9-11. Because these people suffered from mental health issues like lung disease, 
um, stage four cancer on the lymph nodes, like things like that. And it's just scary to think about. And then we have September 10th, 2011, when it's the Flight 93 National Memorial debut, when it's the day of the before the 10th anniversary of 9-11. The field near the Shakespeare, Pennsylvania, were hijacked in United Airlines Flight 93 crash opens to the public as a national memorial. Federal legislation gave the designation to the site on in 2002. Designed by Paul and Melina Murdoch, the memorial commemorates the heroism of 40 passengers and crew members who launched a counter-assault against the terrorists of the final moments before the plane crashed. And then we have September 11th, uh, 2020. I see, I keep, I keep doing that. 2011, the National September 11th Memorial of the World Trade Center is now dedicated. On the 10th anniversary of the text, the 9-11 Memorial um, at the World Trade Center is dedicated the memorial to the victims' families and opens to the public the next day. The memorial, with its two reflecting pools and rows of swamp white oak trees, was designed by architect Michael Arad and the landscape architect Peter Walker Partners. Partners, and it commemorates the ninth. The see, I keep saying nine thousand. It's two thousand nine hundred seventy-seven victims of nine eleven, plus the six victims from the nineteen eighty-three bombing at the World Trade Center. Because remember, like I said. When the towers were hit, because remember, they made a 1993 memorial for those six people, those six Port Authority people that died that day. And that memorial was destroyed along with the World Trade Centers, um, Twin Center, Twin Tower buildings. So, and around the memorial, the rebuilding of the World Trade Center complex continues with construction of the museum underway and new commercial buildings rise to replace those destroyed on 9-11. Then we have May 15, 2014. Hold on, I'm trying to get it. Okay. Where the 9-11 Memorial welcomes the first, first visitors. An above-ground pavilion provides the entry to the museum, which occupies the space below the memorial that Opened in 2011, core exhibitions are located several stories below at Bedrock, where recovery workers conclude their excavation of the World Trade Center site in May 2002. The museum bears solemn witness to the terrorist attacks and tells the story of the recovery that followed. And this was May 15, 2014. So it's a long time. It's been a long time. So there's that. And then we have also another one, another history one, too. It's um, not history, but it's more like that I found. What is it? Um, not timeline. It's like more like... Um, where is it? This one, it's from the Miller Center, the millercenter.org, the timeline of the attacks of September 11th. I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but it does show, if you search this up, this is at Miller, 
center.org slash remembering dash September dash 11 slash September dash 11 dash terrorist dash attacks. And you could see it. There is a map here of the flight path of flights, American Airlines Flight 77 and United Airlines Flight 93. And then we have American Airlines Flight 11 and American Airlines 175. There is like, um, it does give you an actual timeline of like, oh, 5.45 a.m., Muhammad Ada and Abu, like the people, like what time it hit. Like it tells you everything. Like there's even also a, a SoundCloud one of it, like too. Like it literally, like in the documentary, there was the, um, one of the chief firefighters at the scene. He wasn't literally there at the scene. He was close by at the scene. He was um, talking to someone on another scene of a fire being extinguished somewhere. And then all of a sudden you hear, fast, real fast hitting the air, hitting the, the buildings. And it's just scary because, like, as a firefighter, you would hear that and you'd be like, oh, they're just going really fast. And, like, and that's abnormal because airplanes don't really go that fast unless they're going high up in altitude in the air. Like, from the ground going up, they go fast. But other than, like, in the air going fast, they go at, a, like, a normal slow speed if you're going somewhere far, like the U.K. or, like, Italy. Because Italy is like eight, nine hours, and so is the UK, like nine hours of flight. So, yeah, that's what like was scary, because when I heard that, I was like, whoa. I heard, hit the World Trade Center. I was like, holy shit. Because I was like, that's like a loud bang, and you're like, whoa. And then all of a sudden... The chief stops talking to the person and they literally go off with their crew, with their, literally their crew that they came with from their engine and ladder and, and, um, and stuff. And they go and they literally go to the site, they drive and they make the sirens to kind of put a rush in it to make the cars move to the side and move over the move over law and go and kind of gun it down the street because they have to go and rescue people and it was a, a search and rescue people search rescue and evacuate the, the building right away and he explains it too because he i forgot his name but he explains it in the interview with national geographic that his brother too was also a firefighter his younger brother but when he saw, last time he saw his younger brother was when he went upstairs to go rescue, search and rescue because he was the battalion chief. His older brother was the battalion chief and the last time he saw his brother when he went up and he sacrificed his own life to rescue those people. And he was on the higher up floor because the elevator was disabled, was like no longer working, no longer in service because of what happened with the, with the airplane. But when um, 
people from the South Tower heard that bang. They were like, oh, is this like an earthquake or is this happening? And one of the uh, workers goes like, okay, something's going on. I have to leave. And he's trying to leave. And the security guy, the Port Authority guy goes like, where are you, where are you going? Nothing's happening. Nothing's wrong with our building. Everything's fine. Go back upstairs. So then he goes back upstairs. And all of a sudden, minutes later, he sees at his window, his window, for Christ's sake. And another airplane is coming and coming and coming. But it goes to the lower part. Lower, lower part. But it hits almost towards his level, his floor level. So he hears boom. He feels like the boom into the building and he's like okay now the guy that told him to not evacuate the building just yet says now we're on an this is an emergency everyone now evacuate the building through the stairwell and everyone does because after the 1993 bombing the port authority made it a clear-cut decision to make sure and implement that these people these people were to you know, haul ass and make sure that they know the procedures of safety when going down the stairs when an attack happens like that. And they did. And most of them did not survive. And that's why it was 2,977 people that died, including first responders, people on the airplanes, people in the building when the building crashed to the ground. And, and also... Shakesville, Pennsylvania, too. The Flight 93. Um, hold on. I'm trying to find the one where, like, there was one... There was one point in the documentary with George W. Bush in 20... 11 where he tells him where he tells us that he got the call from Barack Obama about Osama bin Laden and he was saying something about that like literally saying something forgot what um um hold on I'm trying to find that right now um, hold on, I'm going to find it now on YouTube. Um, video from the 20, hold on, 2011 interview with phone call with Obama which one was it? it like he said like he got the the phone call something like that Um, I forgot. It was, um, I'm trying to find it. 
No, it's it's not here. It's not on YouTube. It's like more on Disney Plus. So I'm gonna find it because it's like there is more to it. Hold on, I have to find the the specific this is the specific one. Disney Plus. Let me find it. Because it's on there, so I have to f- literally find it. So hold on, let me search it. Um, 9-11. It'll be George W. Bush interview, and I have to play it for a minute. So give me a sec, and I'll find it where he said about Barack Obama. Okay, so I found the last bit of this um, documentary from 9-11, not from 9-11, but the, um, the interview from George W. Bush from National Geographic on 2011. And this was on May, May, um, I'll say it, but not say it. But this is on May 1st, 2011, and George W. Bush tells how he felt that day. And this is um, almost 10 years later. I was in a restaurant in Dallas uh, eating dinner with Laura. Uh, the Secret Service told me I had a phone call from the White House coming in uh, in about 20 minutes. I decided to take the call uh, at, uh, at the House. And um, President Obama called me told me that uh, Osama bin Laden had been killed. And my response was I congratulated him and the special operators that conducted a very dangerous mission. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden. And so I was grateful. I didn't feel any great sense of happiness uh, or jubilation. Uh, I felt a sense of closure. And I felt a sense of gratitude that justice had been done. Eventually, September the 11th will be, you know, a date on the calendar. It'd be like Pearl Harbor Day. For those of us who live through it, um, it'll be a day we'll never forget. And it's true. Because now it's not a national holiday. It's like more like a commemorance day or a remembrance day. Because now everyone remembers what happened and relived it. And most people or women and children and other people, because most people have loved ones and have children of their own that grown to be older adults now and be what their father or mother was at that time, whether it was a reporter, whether that was working at the World Trade Center, or what the was that working at the FDMY or the NYPD or an EMT, they became the next FDMY, NYPD, EMT, doctor, etc. And and it's true what George W. Bush said. It will it will be remembered by all of us because now. Generations like Generation Alpha after 2013 and Gen Z from my time, like from 2000 to 2012, isn't like 
people in 2012 and 2013 that were born in 2012 and 2011 don't even know what 9-11 was. They hear it from textbooks, like I said, but they only give you, like, like not the nitty-gritty parts. They tell you how many people died, yes, and how tall the buildings were and what happened and what occurred. Like, they give you, like, a little short synopsis of what it's about, but not the whole story, like what I'm telling you. The whole story has the 1993 bombing and has the World Trade Center attack and the and the Flight 93 and Flight 175 flight in there. They'll tell you the flight numbers and everything and what happened in Shakespeare, Pennsylvania and the Pentagon and the World Trade Centers, but they won't tell you, like... They tell you who the cause is, but they don't tell you what happened prior to that in the textbooks. They don't tell you that. It's kind of the same thing when, when, like I said at the beginning, that Donald Trump found out that there was one person that came from China after visiting China, like, <clears throat> had the epidemic, a short epidemic, one epidemic of, of COVID-19. He found out. He knew about it. But he didn't tell America about it until reporters found out. Until, until news outlets found out about this outbreak, about this short outbreak. About one and third of people, like two thirds of people of America had COVID-19 and were dying from it. So, <clears throat> ergo, yes, there is a significant amount of people that died at this time period. But it's tragic what these people have endured. And I couldn't think of an, uh, a hard enough war that was fought besides this one. And I don't know if it was 20, like 2008 or 2011 that Osama bin Laden was killed and shot at his home base. But um, the threat has been neutralized. That is what is always told because if you not watch any political shows, there's one show in particular that reminds me of like operations like killing Osama bin Laden. It reminds me of Designated Survivor. In Designated Survivor, it's about when the capital is attacked and like is attacked by a bomb and the president is killed. So the elected president, the elected the I think he was vice president at the time. Um <clears throat> He becomes president, like the president-elect. Well, he wasn't elected, but he was president. He becomes the elected official for now as president because of the bombing of the Capitol. And in there, they, they said in the White House, there is a war room where they discussed, like there is discussed like upcoming wars, upcoming like military wars, and they have surveillance on the screen of like, the upcoming wars and stuff with the military and um i don't even know for sure if that's even accurate because there there are times where it is accurate and it's true that there is a war room in the white house but it's like a off it's in the white house yes but it's like in like a uh a, a sector part in the white house that's like there and like it's it sounds to me it's like off book and off based like in the white house you know and it's kind of like secretive and like sh not shady, but like secretive and only the like, 
like um, the Secretary of Treasury, the Secretary of State, and the President and Vice President know about this room, and the Secret Service know about that room. But other than that, not the Chief of Staff. The Chief of Staff don't even go in that room yet, like at all. I don't even know if they even go there at all. But like, <clears throat> yeah, that was like tragedy. But um, Chloe, what did you think about this whole thing? Um. Because that is all I have to say about this whole 9-11 thing. 9-11 spiel. Oh. Well, as I was listening, and when I say listening, I was like not listening. Um, sorry, not sorry. But, because I'm a little rude. You know me, I'm a little rude. But, honestly, it's, like you said, it's very tragic. These people have endured. And I hear you, I really do, I hear you. A lot saying it and and honestly if I had to endure this tragic event it, it, it would have devastated me because you know also I'm, I'm an emotional per person emotional bitch but other than that like it's just horrific what these people went through and like god forbid that something happened like this like now in our generation of generation alpha and generation Z and Millennials and and baby boomers and all this stuff happens. God forbid it happens again. I don't know how we're gonna deal with it now. And with these people, these these first responders, these first responders, the FDNY, the NYPD, the EMTs, all suffer from mental illnesses. They suffer from depression, depression, the depression, dementia. Um, Heart disease. Um, what else? There's more cancer, throat cancer. It's just horrible, and I totally agree with that. With that, what the first responder said, like they didn't like, like turn their backs on America. They literally went into the full fight of the fire. They went to, they went in there and sacrificed their lives. It's just horrific. I don't, I have no words. I have literally no words. Like, honestly, why didn't New York State, like, do that from the beginning? Like, from, not just after the fact, but a few months later, why didn't they make a bill that, like, kind of made refunds to people for, and compensate them for what they have done to America, what they have helped and endured during these harsh times? That's my question. Why didn't they do it then? Why didn't they do it a month after and compensate them for what they've done and what they've been through? It's just, oh, I, I don't know. It's, it's just horrible. But that's all I have for that. It's just horrific. Oh, trust me. What you're going to talk about the next time is more horrific as well. It's more graphic and detail than 9-11. So... And what Chloe is going to talk about next week is the Idaho murders. Everyone knows this. It's been going on in the news media lately about the Idaho murders. So without further ado, that is going to be our next episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this three hours, almost four hour episode or maybe four hour ep episode of 9-11 of the Spill Your Murder. Well, Spill the Murder. Sorry, correction. But I hope you guys enjoy this four-hour 
um, for our 9-11 episode and my heart goes out to those first responders and those people that have tragically died and not survived the tragedy of what is now 9-11 after 23 years later 23, 22 years later so my heart goes out to those victims that passed away those two 2,977 people that died that day. So let's have a moment of silence before we send off and um, I send you guys off to have a wonderful day. So let's have a moment of silence for them. And now Chloe is going to tell you again what's going to happen next for the next episode. All right, so next episode we're going to talk about the Idaho murders. And I know a little bit of it, but I need to know more information. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of my opinions on this episode. And there is factual, of course, episodes um, of Spill the Murder. And hope to speak to you guys soon. Bye, have a wonderful evening, and enjoy these four hours of her talking about 9-11, and my opinions, bunting in and bunting out. Bye.